Hashem Hashem Naseh Natsliach, Shul Torah. Welcome everyone. Baruch Hashem, it's always good to be in Aventura in the Breslov Center. Uh, today we have something very special. Uh, you know, a, the whole goal of learning Torah is uh, uh, to obviously implement it. The whole goal of teaching Torah is to help others implement it. So when you have one of your Talmudim, you know, start getting to a point where they're finishing Masechtot, they're finishing Masechtot and the Gemara, it's very, very exciting. So today we have the privilege, Baruch Hashem, to see David actually finish the Masechet in the Gemara. And Bezat Hashem will give us a little chidush for a few minutes, and then Bezat Hashem will go back to our uh, series. Bechabot. Thank you, Rabbi. Shalom para todos. Shalom bekulan. Um, we finished today, uh, actually yesterday, Maxeche Baba Mexia, with the program of Daf Yomi. I advise everybody to join this program. It's a very good program to allow you to pay study one page of Gemara a day. And Bezra Hashem in seven years and a half about, you finish the whole chat. So it means it's a compromise, it's a lot of dedication, one page a day, and it's a lot of to learn. Also, it's good to read in groups. You can join groups. It's a different shootings online. You can join, you can learn with groups, learn in your local rabbi. So Bezra Hashem finished my Seheba Vensia today. Uh, we're going to study something for the page 114.83. Rabbi Barabucha found Eliyahu Hanavi standing out in the cemetery of idolaters. See, Rabbi Barabucha said Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah the prophet, sitting in a cemetery. Elijah the prophet didn't die. As we know, he ascended directly to heaven, alive. Also, it's a tikkun, a rectification for him. He's very zealous. He was very zealous with Hashem. So what happened, he had to um, make a tikkun for that. Had to be present every single bring milah, every single circumcision that you skip, he had to be present. Sometimes Eliyahu Hanabi came like a physical person, sometimes came like a, like a malak. That's what we say in the bring milah, is malak Eliyahu, so it's alak, malak. That's what explains, uh, is able to be and pass it to Shabbat. It means we can be a bring milah in America, and bring milah in Germany at the same time, a malak can travel in, in both places at the same time. Okay? So it's a little. Uh, Review about Eliyahu Hanavi background. Rabbi Barabucha asked Eliyahu, what is the law concerning making assessment in the case of a borrower? Eliyahu answered, we learned from Geserat Shabbat for the terms Micha Micha. On the law or a sin in Leviticus 27.8, it is to port for the amount request. This means we have to ask him some questions. What is the law regarding, you know, we have to make an assessment in case, in the case somebody poor? Yes, we have to make some assessment. You see, somebody's too poor, we have to evaluate it before. Elijah was concerned about Rabbah Barabucha because he was very poor. He was very extremely poor. He was concerned about him. He was worried. When somebody is, is, is concerned about what he goes, with the cemetery. In the case you don't have a Jewish cemetery, you get allowed to go to a cemetery or somebody idolatry, like in the case somebody Gentile. Rabbah Barabucha asked Elijah another question. From where is the right that a naked person should not separate the Rumah? Elijah answered because it's writing. He should not see a, sh- a shameful thing on you. You don't see anything uh, shame on you. That's based in uh, Devarim 23.15. This teach that one naked should not be a sin when pronounced a shame name. Since a blessing that includes God's names must be recited when separating Terumah, a naked may not separate Terumah. First, you have to be dressed before you make any barakah. You're not allowed to make any barakah if you don't have a dress first. Imagine you in the street, somebody half naked, not allowed to make any barakah. You are also not allowed to say barakah and somebody like that. Let's continue with the conversation between uh, Rabbi Barabuka and Eliyahu Hanabi. He said to Eliyahu, is the master not a coin? What is this, the master standing in a cemetery? You're not a coin, so what are you here? You're not getting too much purification for that? Rashi and the Tosefta tell us 
Eliyahu Hanabi is the same as uh, uh, Pinchas, Pinchas Akoen, the same Gemara, same, uh, same soul, according with the teaching of the Arizal. Elijah answered him, Did the master not learn Masechet Taharot, where Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said that the grace of the idolatries do not transmit to man? Because it's right in Ezekiel 34:31, you are Adam, speaking of the nation of Israel, but the idolatries no are referred to as Adam. So you don't refer when people say Adam, refer to everybody, I'll call Aulang. Actually, no. When they say Hadam, it's referred to everybody, Goin and Jewish and, and Israel. When it referred to Adam only, it often referred to Jewish people. Uh, the Gemara explained that it's referring to Adam, we mentioned already. Uh, the Halach is according with Rabbi Shimon ben Gamaliel, that the tomb is transmitted only to direct contact with the Gentiles, of course, or for tomb of hell, when it's under the roof. Exactly when. Uh, that's what explained Eliyahu Hanabi was allowed to stay in the cemetery because you touch directly the, the course of the Gentile, then you get to man. Was under the tomb of hell, under the roof, it's allowed. But if you sit in the cemetery standing up, it's okay. The other reason is that it was a malak, it was an angel. So he really was standing on the ground, he was floating around, did not touch the, the soul. So it's not get contamination from, from to man. Let's continue. Rabbi Barabu explained that he was not aware of the Abaraita. He don't learn that part in the, in the in Talmud. And Elijah asking him why you are not able to study all the sick order of the Mishnah properly. He answered that he has a matter pressing me. He's a dark with financial strength. He was very poor. So when you really poor, you very hard to uh, learn Torah. So he was uh, telling, I can learn that. See, I only learned the part uh, concerning to the diaspora, to the Huslares, but only the part concerning to Israel. Finally. To conclude with that story, that encounter, Elijah took Rabbi Barabuja and brought him to the Garden of Never. He took him to Shemaim. Elijah said to him, Take off your cloth, your coat, and collect and take some of the leaf from the floor. Then he did, and then we was leaving the Gang Eden with the leaf. He heard the voice say, Who is consuming this reward in this world to come now, like Rabbi Barabuja? Who is taking this reward now? He has part in the world to come. What is he doing? When he, heard, when he heard that, he threw them away. When he brought his coat, the coat back, he discovered that the coat absorbed the fragrance of the leaf, the smell. He sold it for 12,000 dinners and gave you the money to his son-in-law. So, it's an incredible story. He was taking, Eliyahu and I were trying to help him, helping him to get, you know, get some mercy for him. He can give you some comfort, take some leaf on the floor, and then bring it back to you so you can sell it. So when he hear the boy saying, oh, I'm gonna, you're taking already my reward and the word to come, he leave everything. When he bring it back, he give it to this uh, solid, it's for a lot of money, and give it to this uh, sons-in-law. If he give it to this law, Maharal explain, he will get benefit because he's kid, so he give it to somebody else. Uh, Elijah didn't intend to rob Barahuba losing his reward and the word to come. He don't want that. He want to give a comfort, and he want to, him to have a told, hey, you're going to have reward in the world to come, so that I can give you strength to finish life and be happy about it. We also learn from this that a person receives a, mer- a miracle assisting. Every time you get a miracle in here, you get a little part from the world to come. So it's also recommended not to release miracles. Always try to, always ask Hashem for everything, but every time you take a miracle, you take a little part from the world to come. Elijah demonstrates the extent of the reward the Torah scholars by asking Rabbi Huba to collect leaves off the ground. Can you imagine what's on the ground? What about the ones in the tree, the fresh ones? They are really more and more and more value. So this, for this we can imagine how much is the, uh, the worker for the fruit or the Torah study. See, it's on the, floor, the, floor, the ones in the floor have a lot of 
value, how much money was in the, in the tree. So with that, um, I'm going to go to the last line on the Maxehet, and I'm going to get her drama, Mr. Chen, and Kaddish. The Gemara relates the report that Rashibon ruling, ruling that King Shapur, King Shapur said today in the praise of Rashibon ruling, we extend our graciousness of Rashibon. Apikun mina le Rashibon. Adran, Adran, Adran halaf habait, habait behaliya. And Rateba Maxai is concluded. Adran halaf masehe baba Messia. Behadran alat datang alat maxehe baba Messia. Bedatak alat la tigneshe mitak maxehe baba Messia. Belat tigneshe mitam lat. Bialma adin. Bialat bialma de ate. Amen. <tose> Hashem, You see, it's beautiful. It's, um, for anyone who doesn't know, the Gemara Masechet Bava Metzia has almost 120 dapim. Daf is different than page, different than page, because a page, you know, in a regular book, for example, is going to be taught. A uh, page, for example, is one page, one side. A daf in a gemara is both sides, and they consider that one daf. So in essence, really, in comparison to pages, it's double. So it's 240 pages instead of 120. Now, when I first started learning gemara, it was very, very difficult for me. It would take me approximately six hours, six, six and a half hours, to finish one daf. Just one daf. One daf in gemara would take me about six, six and a half hours. And the uh, first Masechet that I uh, learned was uh, Masechet Brachot, I think, like most people. And uh, I almost gave up, I'd say, probably a thousand times. Uh, because it was very difficult. It's very, very difficult. But uh, something to tell you a little chidush about uh, Masechet Bava Metzia, to add to Rav David now. Finishing Masechet Baruch Hashem. Listen, you teach. And Bava Metzia. I believe it's around page 30, 31, something like that. The, uh, there's a machloket. There's a machloket as always. 
The question is, who is your rabbi? Who is your rabbi? Rabbi Yossi says, it's the one that taught you divrei chokhmah. What's divrei chokhmah? Divrei chokhmah is gemara. Why? Because it's considered the most difficult part of Torah. Most difficult. You know, Chumash is nice, Mishnah is nice, but the most, to delve down deep into the lava of Torah, that's Gemara. So Rabbi Yossi says, listen, your teacher that taught you Chumash, Chazaku Baruch, your teacher that taught you Mishnah, Chazaku Baruch, but the one that taught you Gemara, that's your Rabbi. Rabbi Yehuda says, no, the one that taught you most of what you know. Most of all, you know, you learn Torah 10, 20, 30, 50 years. You're not going to have one rabbi usually. You're going to have multiple rabbis. So let's say you have 10 rabbis throughout your life. But one guy, one tzaddik, taught you 40% of what you know, and the other nine taught you the other 60%. So obviously the one that taught you 40% is your rav. Right? But then Rabbi Meir gives us a chidush. He says, no. I'm sorry, Rabbi Meir is the first one, Rabbi Yossi is the last one. Rabbi Yossi is the one that gives us a chidush. He says, no. We learn from David HaMelech, anyone that teaches you even two Mishnayot, two things in the Torah, that's your Rav. That's your Rav. Where we learn it from? How David HaMelech called its arch nemesis. His arch nemesis, he called him Rabbi. Mori. Gave him all these uh, kinuim, all these compliments, Rabbi. For what? For teaching them two Mishnayot, which... The Chazal says he actually already knew one of them. He already knew one of them, but he taught him too. Said, He's my rabbi. So what do we learn from here? I actually wrote an article about this maybe about a year, a year and a half ago. What do they all have in common? Machloket, we understand. What's the, what do we actually learn from here? We learn from here that the common opinion, the common denominator amongst all of these uh, sages is the definition of a teacher. Definition of a rabbi is a teacher, meaning anyone that teaches Torah is considered a rabbi. So this also answers the question and the confusion we have in today's world, where people I actually talked about this recently, but it's always worth it to remind people of this. There's a lot of confusion today about people asking about smicha. You know, whether a rabbi has a smicha, whether a rabbi doesn't have a smicha. Sometimes they find out that some big rabbis don't have a smicha. Sometimes they find out that small rabbis have a smicha. You know, in, in, in Hebrew, smicha also means cover, like a blanket. So I say, oh, he has a pillow too. He's sleeping, he's not rebuking his people. But uh, in reality, the smicha that is mentioned in the Torah, which the first time it's mentioned is when Moshe Rabbeinu gave a smicha to Yeshua Benun. And in the Gemara, it actually talks about how when he gave him this, when he put his hands on his head, he didn't just uh, give him a chazaku baruch, go take over the land. He actually gave him part of his abilities. His abilities to become a vessel of Torah from Hashem. Because to receive Torah, it's not like, uh, hey, listen Hashem, send me some Torah, send me an you know, email and I'll know everything. I'll read the email, I know the whole shots by heart. You have to earn it. Mesirut nefesh. So Yeshua Benun wasn't exactly known as the Gdoradol. He was the Gabai. He was the one that cleaned the bit Knesset when everybody went home. But he was always there for Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu went Mount Sinai, 
Yeshua Ben Nun waited over there until Moshe Rabbeinu came back. Everybody's idol worshiping. Yeshua Ben Nun is waiting. Moshe says, "Okay, go to Canaan, which is later to be called Israel. Go check it out." But here's a special blessing, blessing for Yeshua Ben Nun, in case these Rishayim try to convince you to do otherwise. Everybody in there does a foolish thing of saying Lashonara about the land. And Kalev and uh, Yeshua Benun are the only tzaddikim. So, even though Moshe Rabbeinu wanted his children, either Eliezer or Gershom, to become the Gdoledo, to become the leaders, to become the kings, Hashem said no. They're not the ones. Who is it going to be? Yeshua Benun. Why? Because one trait that he has that's better than everyone else except Moshe Rabbeinu is the humblest man of the land. And when you're humble, automatically you become a vessel. A vessel for Torah. A vessel for connecting to Hashem. But if you're one of these people, like I was laughing about in last week's Shurim, I have a guy, he calls himself a Rav, and we're having a little bit of a debate. It's really he's debating himself, I'm just trying to show him why he's wrong. And, uh, no, not because I know it, because that's what it says in the Torah. Don't think I'm some, some genius. Just what it says in Torah, he doesn't read it, I read it, so it's not the Shem. One day I'll actually read it. Anyway, and he says to me, you know, people love my teachings. He's about himself. He says, you know, people love my teachings because, you know, to teach, you have to be honest and you have to be humble. And I am honest and I am humble. <laughs> I listened to the recording maybe ten times that day. Laughing, laughing myself. I'm like, does he understand the definition of humble? The definition of humble means you're not saying that you're humble. And usually honest people don't tell people that they're honest. You just show them you're honest. Usually when you say, listen, trust me, that means I'm not going to trust you. <laughs> tell you the truth means I'm about to tell you a lie. Or you've been lying to me all along until now. <laughs> so Yeshua Ben Nun had, it's, it's, it's a reality. On Wall Street. <laughs> it's a figure of speech, but nonetheless, the, the, the point is that if you're doing something and you feel a need to prove yourself, there's something wrong. Either something wrong with the relationship, something wrong with the way you're expressing yourself, something wrong with the other person. It's obviously, it's not 100% where you want it to be. But Yeshua Benun got to his full potential, became Gdolado. Now, one of the main things that we see from this week's Mishnah we're going to go over is that every single one of these rabbis, every single one of these Tanaim Kedoshim had a very similar midah, obviously everybody in their own level, but they're all humble. Every one of them was extremely humble. Now in the Gemara Baba Metziah, the Tanaim argue who is an actual Rav. And they say anyone that teaches Torah He's the Rav. He's a Rav. But in the old days, when Yeshua ben Nun got the smicha, it's not that he became a Rav. He didn't become a local Chabad rabbi, or Breslov rabbi, or, or, or Orthodox shul rabbi, or Shem Rachem, uh, you know, or Reform shul or something. No, it's not that type of rabbi. What does it mean when he had a smicha? Both Yeshua ben Nun and all over the Gemara. A smicha in the Gemara is the equivalent of a posek. 
not a rabbi. Smicha and the Gemara means you made laws. Yeshua Benun made laws. He says yes, yes. Says no, no. The judge, right? He's the judge and he rules. This is what Hashem, this is what my understanding of this halacha is. Final. Tet, posek, that's the halacha. So in the Gemara where it mentions Rabbi this, Rabbi that, Rabbi this, everybody's like, oh look, he's a rabbi, and the 18-year-old little Chabadnik is a rabbi too. Wow. Look, he's Rav. And this other guy calls himself also Rav from this generation. Same thing? Not same thing. First and foremost, anyone that has a smicha in those days, like I said, they were considered a posek. They were considered a dayan. They were considered a judge that was actually able to implement alakha. Now, after some time, after Yavne and a lot of balagan that happened to Am Yisrael, eventually this all stopped. We were not able to, because of all the terrible things that happened to Am Yisrael throughout the generations, we were not able to continue this tradition, and for some time it stopped. But eventually they brought it back to call people rabbis, but it became very, very different. A rabbi became more of like a job title than it did a, uh, have anything to do with you know, being a posek. As a matter of fact, some of the biggest giants in history, for many years, didn't even want to call themselves rabbi. At all. They just want to call themselves by the name. But nonetheless, the whole concept of smicha that's misunderstood today is that everybody could take a test. And if you pass a test, you could technically get the job description or title, rabbi. Now, the problem with this is that it's very, very misleading. Because the rabbi title doesn't actually tell you what kind of smicha you got. Because what happens is, it actually doesn't even mean that you have a smicha. It just, you have a job title. And let's say you pass a test, let's you got... Now, there's many, many smichas. There's many different types of tests. The first one that most people take is for shechita, for being a slaughter, for being a, you know, a, uh, a butcher, and slaughtering kosher slaughter. It requires a special skill. That's usually the most common, buhaba. The most common uh, one that people start off with. If you don't mind turning on the air conditioner because I'm melting. God bless you guys, you know, you're not melting, but I have hot blood. But uh, anyway, um, the smicha uh, was that, you know, he's a butcher. So that guy is now, he's a butcher now, but he's not going to be a butcher. Most people that, you know, get the smicha for butcher, they're not becoming a butcher. It's just that this is like usually the first test until you get the next one. Next one, maybe you're going to be, I don't know, a uh, moel or you're going to be uh, one a rabbi for Keilah, or you're going to be a rabbi for, uh, let's say, to do Chupa and Kiddushim, or you're going to be a rabbi that's going to you know, be an expert in Tarat Mishpacha, like David HaMelech. You know, women are going to bring you the, uh, you know, they're, uh, they check themselves every month, they're going to say if this is good, this is not good. You know, people think this is embarrassing, but just so you know, this was David HaMelech's job, as a king. As a king, this is what he did. It's a king. He writes in Tehillim, Hashem. Everybody else is, you know, excited about their glory, their money, their this. I'm excited about being a rabbi. What kind of rabbi was? He would check Tarat Mishpacha. Women would come to him and show him, is this, is this blood from a wound or is this blood from my uterus? If it's from a wound, you're good to go. You can be with your husband, bring children to the world. But if it's blood from the uterus, Shem Nida. 
And this very same guy that said, I'm humble and I'm honest, what's the debate? The debate is, he actually said in a lecture that if somebody does tshuva, Jew does tshuva, his wife doesn't feel like doing tshuva. Doesn't feel like it. He does tshuva. It happens a lot, unfortunately. It happens a lot. Unfortunately, it leads to sometimes bochabah. At least sometimes it leads to divorce, or it leads to problems. You know, not everybody wants to do, not everybody's always on the same wavelength. But sometimes they're supporting anyway. You know, the husband does tshuva, the wife doesn't feel like it, but she supports him. Listen, you do what you got to do. You do. You want to study, study. You want to do this, but just don't tell me what to do. Or opposite. The husband says, listen, you want to be tznua, you want to be modest, you want to cover your hair, you want to do whatever you want. I don't want to do it. I don't want to keep Shabbat. That's a decent human being. Even though he's not doing tshuva, he's a decent human being. Now, on the other hand, sometimes you have reshaim. What's a rasha? They do everything they can to stop the other one. Purpose. Dafka, I'm going to watch TV on Shabbat. Never watch TV in his life, but on Shabbat I'll watch TV just to ruin your Shabbat. Dafka, I'm going to bring taref to the house. Why? The kosher is right next aisle. And it's on discount today. Discount. Sale. First time in history, kosher food's on sale. No, 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 I like the pig. Why do you like the pig? The steak is delicious. Until today, 30 years we're married, you like the steak, steak that's... What happened? Dafka. Dafka, that miskenim. These people... These people are miskenim. What can you do? What can you do? We try to help these people, but it's very, very difficult sometimes. But anyway, you have different situations, different people doing different things. There are certain times where you have to try to help them fix the marriage, but there are certain conditions where you have to tell them they must divorce immediately. One of them, one of the conditions, the main condition of forcing someone that they have to divorce immediately is if one of them is not willing to keep ta'arat mishpacha. Meaning, if the husband is not willing to wait for his wife to go to the mikveh before he's with her, he's not willing to be separated from her for half, approximately 12 days of the month. Approximately, it's not, depends on the woman, and obviously different women have different times. If he's not willing to wait and let her go to the mikveh and be pure by the time they're together, she must divorce him. Must. This is not like maybe. This is not Khumra. This is not Kabbalah. This is basic level alakha. Without Tarat Mishpacha, there's no marriage. On the opposite, if he's married to her, married to her, he's to Tzadik. But she says, listen, I'm never going to the Mikveh. It's not happening. Mikveh me are enemies. Never going to the Mikveh. You have a tale, you have rabbis that say you're allowed to stay with her, but obviously never allowed to touch her. I'd like to stay with her, like Rav Uri Zohar, before he became one of the giants of the Kiruv movement in the last generation. He did tshuva. His wife didn't want to do tshuva. For years, she didn't want to do tshuva. He wasn't able to be with his wife for many years. But his rabbi kept telling him, listen, she eventually she was going to do tshuva. She's going to do tshuva, and eventually she, eventually she did tshuva. But he kept telling him, like, for the rab, I can't be with her because she doesn't want to go to mikveh. He goes, don't be with her. Hold yourself. As long as you can hold yourself, hold yourself. But in general... If the wife is not willing to go to uh, to uh, mikveh, not only are you not allowed to be with her, you are at right to divorce her immediately without paying her ketubah. Without paying her ketubah. So now when somebody that calls himself a rav, that's humble and honest, he says to people, listen, if your wife doesn't want to go to mikveh, you can be with her anyway. 
This is a sur karet. Sur karet. Now, if you, somebody it's with his wife, when she's nida, when she didn't go to the mikveh, the, the punishment is the worst punishment in the Torah. Karet, death penalty. Death penalty. It's actually worse. It's worse than incest. Now we think in this generation, we still think incest is not good. We're not sure about next generation, but this generation was still okay. In that it regards, at least. If somebody says, listen, this guy was with his sister, everybody cringes. Like, What's wrong with you? This guy was his mother. Even more ichs. If I'm telling you that Hashem, Hashem, the creator, the manufacturer, he says, him, with his wife, when she's nida, is worse. Worse. Worse punishment. So now you understand. So when Rav, the humble and honest, says the opposite of Hashem, it's a problem. It's a problem. It says about Shabbat. If he said this, he says a lot of things. So, now we know that just because somebody calls himself a Rav, the humble and honest, doesn't necessarily mean he's a Rav, the humble and honest. It also doesn't necessarily mean he has a smicha. But just because he doesn't have a smicha doesn't necessarily mean anything either. Now, the chidush that we got from Masechet Bava Metziah about Rav is that if you teach, you're a Rav. Now, one thing that most people in this generation don't know is that there is no smicha available. You cannot get a, you cannot get a smicha. There's no test to teach. There is no smicha for teaching. You start teaching, you're a Rav. He just taught us he's a rabbi. Now, when I first heard about this, I don't, I'm a very skeptical person. So I asked my rabbi, and he says, yes, of course. I'm like, yeah, but this doesn't look good. He goes, well, let's see. Rabbi Vadya, Zechet Tzadik V'Kadosh Livacha, he never took a test. He didn't take a smicha test. But why did they give him, why now they make him a rav? They make them Av Bedin, Rishon Letzion, Gdola Dorot. Why? He was called a Gaon Mukar. A term called Gaon Mukar means a known genius. Meaning it's to a point where it's embarrassing to give him a test. There is no test for somebody like this. You just give him number one. This is the Moshe Rabbeinu of the generation. What are you going to give Moshe Rabbeinu a test? He spoke to God five minutes ago. What test are you going to give him? You can ask him what, what, uh, what God said to him. He wrote it in the Torah. You have it. It's called five books of Moses, not five books of your own. Five books of Moses. What are you going to give him a test? What does uh, Parashat Naso say about Sota? What are you going to do? He wrote it. Rav Yashiv, same thing. Rav Yashiv, one of the biggest giants in history. Rav Yashiv, he didn't take a test. And many, many rabbis that are giants never took a test. There's no smicha. Why? For them, there's... what are they taking a test for? As a matter of fact, many of the top lecturers, people that give lectures also never took a smicha. Number one, because there's no, smicha, there's no smicha for being a lecturer. Number two, if I'm going to go take, say, for example, people always ask me, did you take a test? And I always tell them, no. Well, am I stupid? No. I had eight licenses in the securities list. So just in case someone thinks I have a problem passing tests, oh, Hashem, Hashem, I was able to pass some tests. Each security license average questions between 100 to 260 questions at eight different licenses. Each one is equivalent to the bar. Bar for lawyers, each one at eight of them. Nine, nine, I'm sorry, nine. Nine licenses. Okay, so I was able to pass tests in the past. I was in school, I was a good Tamit Chacham in secular knowledge. 
So it's not the test. Why didn't I take the test? Because if I go now, spend, let's say, two years of yeshiva just to learn shechita, or just to learn something else, that means I can't do kiruv. So Mashiach is going to come and say, Hey, Aaron, how are you? I said, hey, Baruch Hashem, how are you doing? He says, well, listen, in the last two years that you got your smicha, another million and a half Jews signed a deed with the, uh, with the, uh, to buy an apartment first class in Gehenom because they didn't do tshuva. Chazaku Baruch for your smicha. What are you going to do with the smicha? How are people going to do tshuva from sitting in the yeshiva getting a smicha for, for slaughtering? So that's why people need to understand. Again, before you jump, attack, learn a little bit. Learn what it means. Learn what it says. And Gemara says that. Another interesting thing you can learn from Gemara a real story. There was a woman, maybe some 25 years ago, real story. She said the story herself. She said, I used to be, and you look at this woman, it's a Haridit, you think she was born with the Kisulosh. She says, you know, I used to be not only not religious, I was anti. I was anti-Judaism. Israeli, anti-Judaism. Unfortunately, it's common today. It says, one day, my family brought me to a meeting, and they were thinking that they were going to send me to a seminar, and I was telling them that I'm actually going to India. I'm going to India to go learn from some guru. Learn some Avodah from guru. And they thought that they're going to send me to do tshuva. And they're telling me, they're telling me, and I'm not even listening to them. And I said, listen, thank you for your offer. But I'm actually the same day that you're telling me that you have a seminar, I'll have to prepare because the next morning I have a flight to India and I'm going there for a year to see a guru. They begged her, don't go, don't go, don't go, don't go. It's like, listen, I'm going. So at the very least, at least go to the seminar for the day. Go to the lecture. Go to one lecture. One lecture, and we'll even give you money for your guru craziness trip. I'll go to one lecture. She goes to Irgun Arachim. Irgun Arachim, the uh, organization Arachim, it's a huge Kiruv uh, organization for many, many years. They're one of the originals in this generation at least. And uh, they have many seminars every day, something new. They save many, many Jews, Baruch Hashem. And the Irgun uh, Arachim had this seminar going, and they go, she goes to the lecture, and as you would know it, the lecturer can't show up. He got stuck in traffic, something, he's not making it. He called in, he's not making it. Everybody's waiting. And they tell him, now, you have a room full of 500 people. You can't just tell him, hey, by the way, the guy is not uh, coming. Thank you for coming. Go home. These people, if they don't do tshuva right now, we're going to lose them forever. You don't get that many chances to do tshuva, just so you know. The Rambam says, you have to have schut to do tshuva. Schut in Shammai, you have to have merit to do tshuva. Not everybody's going to do tshuva. In the end of days, when we're going to have 15 days of darkness, which is five times more than we had in Egypt. In Egypt, we had three days of darkness. 80% of Am Israel died during those three days. All the ones that didn't want to do tshuva, all the ones that didn't want to go and get the Torah, Hashem killed them during darkness. 
That's why it says Hamushim left Egypt. Hamushim means one-fifth, one out of five. Means four out of five didn't leave. Where are they? Died. Why during the darkness plague? So the Egyptians don't see it. So they, they don't think that Hashem is punishing the Jews and the Egyptians, and they call it like nature. But nonetheless, in the end of the days, the Rambam says, we're going to have 15 days of darkness. In those days, all of Am Yisrael are Reshaim, the ones that are Reshaim, that did not do tshuva, will die during this time. But anyone that has the merit to live, that survives this, will do complete tshuva. But first you have to survive it. And the Rambam also says, How are you gonna, what are you going to do? You have to do tshuva before it happens. But to do that, you have to have merit. You have to have some schuyot in shamayim. To do something for Hashem to say, okay, you know what? Give him a little iwure tshuva in his heart. All of a sudden, he cares about Judaism. All of a sudden, he cares about Hashem. All of a sudden, he wants to go to Shiul Torah at 9.30 at night. Give him some iwure tshuva. Not everyone's going to have this merit. So everybody thinks, no, no, all of Amish is going to do tshuva. It's not true. It's not true. You have to have merit to do tshuva. But now, you have yourself a situation where many people are lost. And we try to save them. One at a time, another one at a time, another one, five, ten, fifty, a hundred, thousand. But still, we have a lot of work to do, Baruch Hashem. Just the other day, I was on the phone with a woman in New York. She saw the personal story. She got very motivated and she wanted to talk to me. Text messaging wasn't enough. I I can't really spend too much time on the phone. Because... Just dealing with hundreds of messages a day is already enough. But this one, according to the person that referred it to me, was really something uh, that needed help right now. It was either now or never. So, Baruch Hashem, I spoke to her, and usually I don't really spend much time on the phone. Even when I have a call with somebody, usually I keep it to, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes at most, 25 minutes. I try to keep it really bare minimum just to get to the bottom line. I don't care about if you watch the football game. I care if you do tshuva, I'm not going to do tshuva. You have a question, I'll give you an answer. You have a, a, uh, if you have questions, I'll answer you forever. No, no problem. But if it's just, you know, nonsense, not for me. So anyway, long story short, our conversation goes on for two hours. My wife already, my rabbinit, she starts knocking on my office. She goes, she's looking at me like, she's never on the phone for two hours. Once in a while, 40-minute conversation, but two hours? After the end of the conversation, I told my wife, this is why I was on the phone for two hours. So I knew it was either now or never. Baruch Hashem, at the end of the conversation, the young woman took on herself kosher, both inside the house and outside the house, Shabbat completely, keeping Shabbat, and changing our entire wardrobe to be tznua. One phone call, two hours. Tznua, tznua. Snua usually is 500 lectures, 500 hours, 1,000 hours. Two-hour conversation is worth it. But what are you doing throughout this two hours? You're begging people to do tshuva. You're begging them, please, look, this is good for you, this is this, this is this. You tell them what, you give them answers, questions, this. By the end, if you see it's working, go for it. Go for the whole thing. I'll tell them, oh, listen, just keep kosher, I'll talk to you in six months. What if the Mashiach comes in six months? She's still keeping kosher, it's not going to help her. It's not going to help her keeping kosher. So now this woman goes to the lecture and unfortunately she doesn't have the merit or at least we think she doesn't have the merit to see this lecturer come. So the rabbi of 
one of the rabbis of Achim says, I can't tell people that this guy is not coming. They have to figure something out. He sees there's a couple of Avrechim, a couple of young guys that came to the seminar. You know, sometimes they need chizuk for themselves. He says, no, who knows something? What'd you learn? He goes, everybody's very like humble. What do you learn? We're here to watch. He goes, okay, you, come on, you, what are you learning right now? He says, I'm learning Baba Metziah. I'm learning Masechet Baba Metziah. Okay, go, you teach us Baba Metziah. Me teach you Baba Metziah. He goes, yeah, yeah, what'd you learn this week? He goes, I learned stuff, this. Go, teach us what you learned. He goes, me, teach you. It's either that or we're going to lose 500 people. Anyone with a little bit of Yerat Shemaim says, oh, I have to. It's not a matter of want to, I have to. He gets up and he scans, he starts talking about what happens if you find something, a lost object. Yeah, what do you find if you find a lost object? You return it, you don't return it. Does it have signs? Doesn't have signs. He goes through all the rules. For anyone that's like new to Judaism, it's kind of boring. That's, if you're new, it's boring. Signs, no signs. Listen, just give it back or don't give it back. Get out of my face already with this thing. Five pages on this one. Ah, come on, what, five pages. I need the rules. Just tell me. I find it. Do I have to give it back? Yes or no? Bottom line, give me a tachlis. Right? If you're brand new, you don't understand the beauty of Gemara, the fire that goes. One word. Why does he say this? Why does he say that? Why are they arguing about two seconds? Why are they arguing about whether you should do it? Whether you should look for a sign? Whether you shouldn't look for a sign? Whether it's to a goy? Whether it's to a Jew? What's the difference? What? They're both humans. Hashem created both of them. What, are you racist? Why does he care? This young woman is educated. She starts listening to all these rules, this, that. She goes, okay, so I don't know why they sent me to this shiur. They could have sent me a shiur about, I don't know, who God is. Something about science, something about this. But they sent me here to learn about, okay, so if I find something, I'll remember, okay, I'll give it back. She left, goes on a plane. She goes to Guru. She goes to Abu Dazara. Shem And she tells a story and she says, I became like this with the guru. BFFs. Everywhere he went, it was me and a bunch of other people, we'd follow him. Like little minions. Guru goes here, we go here. Guru goes there, we go there. Everybody's following this guru and everybody thinks this guru is a tzaddik. One day, she says, I see the guru found a big wallet on the floor. He picks up the wallet... He looks at the wallet, takes out all the money, puts it in his pocket, and throws the wallet out. She says, oh, Guru. Yes? You dare speak to Guru? Um, don't you think you should return that money to whoever it belongs to? Says, no, this is... It was meant to be mine. It was meant to be mine. It was on my way. She said, after being with this guru for over a year and a half, at that very moment I knew it was all nonsense. Why? Because if the Jews even have rules of what to do with the lost and found, there must be some truth in it. 
And I got on the next plane, I came back, I went to the next seminar, I actually stayed for the entire seminar, Baruch Hashem, Tshuva, Banim Tzadikim, Banot Tzadikot, Shtabach Shimolad. From what? Masechet Baba Metziah. Masechet Baba Metziah. You see, sometimes the Masechet speaks to us. Sometimes it speaks to us. The book by my Rav, one of Baruch Hashem, Shtabach Shimolad, Big Talmud Chacham, one of his many books, Called Doresh Tov. It's a three-part book. It's three books, really. And uh, one of them, one section talks about uh, short. Doresh Tov means good speaker, good speech. And so if someone wants to give a Dvar Torah at Shabbat, wants to give a little shiur to his friends, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, half hour, hour even, he gives like two, three pages about each thing. So first thing is, he does it about every Parashat Shavuah. Second section is about every holiday or fun event, Brit Milah, wedding, celebration, and every holiday. And the last part is about every single Masechet in the Gemara. Every Gemara, almost 40 Masechetot, it gives you the Chidush about the Gemara. What it says, two pages, three pages, you want to do a single Masechet, you read this. And it obviously adds stories to make it very, very interesting. In a Gemara, Maseret Baba Metziah, he says, the Rav Mi Velozin, Rosh Yeshivat Velozin, the Yeshiva there was very, very famous. Very famous. And somebody came to the Rav, one of Gdolei Ador, says, Kvoda Rav, what do you guys do in this Yeshiva that makes it so famous? You learn, we learn. We have a yeshiva. You have a yeshiva. You have books. We have books. What makes your yeshiva so special, so famous? Anan Atziv, the Rav Mula Velozhin, answered him. Etzlenu ba'yeshiva ochlim shotim v'yashnim. Here in our yeshiva, we eat, we drink, and we sleep. So everybody's listening to this. What do you mean? You eat, you drink, you sleep. That's what makes you so special. The Rav Volozhin says, eating, drinking, and sleeping are the only things your body requires. You must do them to survive. Everything else is extra. Everything else is extra. So you have to do it. So we do what we have to do. The question is, what do you do with the rest of the time? The rest of the time, we learn, we learn, we learn some more, and we learn. That's what makes it so special. When someone is interested in getting close to Hashem Barach, the first thing they need to understand is... Who they're learning from. What they're dealing with here. We're not dealing with secular knowledge. We're not dealing with guru. We're not dealing with any of this nonsense. We deal with emet. We deal with divine knowledge. And even though there are many, many good books in today's world by Tamidim Chachamim that still write books today, one has to make sure that for every book that he buys from somebody from this generation 
he's already read many, many books from previous generations. Especially when we're talking about the Chumash, with the commentary from Rashi, Tosfot, from Rambam. Talk about Gemara. Obviously, he's gone over the Shas, or on a regular basis, he's learning it. The Midrashim, all of the books that were written many, many years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. And the reason why is because the closer you are to Sinai, the closer you are to the original, the closer you are to the ultimate emit. And it's not that Chash Shalom, today's world is, uh, you know, there's no Tamid Chomid that can write. But we have to ask yourself a question. How do I know that this is it? That the one that's writing today is sticking to the truth until I know what the truth is. First I need to know what Rashi said. First I need to know what the Rambam says. First I need to know who Rabbi Akiva was. Then I'll read Rabbi so-and-so that wrote a book today. Because then I can compare and contrast. Because sometimes you have people that call themselves Rabbi and sometimes they even have a smicha. And they write a book and the book says everything opposite from the Torah. But if you don't know, it just looks has nice colors. The book has nice colors, some pictures. Looks more fun. But then you find out, publisher, Christian Church House. Publisher, you know, one of these priests or one of these kofrim. So it has a nice picture. It may even have Hebrew on it. It doesn't mean anything. So also another thing you have to watch out with in regards to books, aside from obviously making sure you become an expert in the past, is the publisher. It has to be a reliable publisher. You can't just buy from any publisher, even if it says Rambam on it, even if it says Chumash on it, even if it says whatever it says on it. It has to be a reliable publisher, because unless you speak Svata Kodesh, unless you speak and you're an expert in Hebrew, where you know, obviously, for sure, this is what it says, 99% of the time, you're going to be reading a translation, English translation, Russian translation, French, whatever language you speak. And unless it comes from a reliable trans, from a reliable publisher, the translation is 100% of the time not reliable. Not sometimes. 100% of the time not reliable. Meaning, you buy a book that's five books of Moses. Basics. Number one selling book in history. Right? Basics. You buy it from a non-kosher publisher, guaranteed, guaranteed, not, not sometimes, not 90% of the time, guaranteed, the translations do not match the real source. They do not match. Examples. Who is the number one publisher? It's the church. What's the church interest? Church interest for you to believe in idol worship called Jesus. Now, when I first started reading, I didn't know this. So I just bought a book. And then I found out there's a few interesting words. So, first I saw the word Selah. Selah means rock. Or eternal. But the book says, translation not found, or translation unknown. As a Jew, Israeli, born in Israel, I knew it was known. I knew it. Even though I only got fifth grade education or fourth grade education in Israel, I still knew what Selah meant. Why? Well, I used to see them on the beach. I used to go on a Selah, I used to go fishing. I know what Selah means. So, what do you mean, translation unknown? Okay, that was already not so good. Then, I learned a little bit, and I saw the word Re'em. Re'em is a biblical animal. It's very, very large. Somewhat of like a mix between a bull and a deer. 
but huge, like a dinosaur huge. And it's mentioned nine times in the Torah. Interestingly enough, if you read it, the word, the English translation of the word re'em in non-kosher books is unicorn. Unicorn is a mythical creature that's in cartoons. It's not a real creature. It never existed. It's a horse with a horn on it that has wings and it flies in the air because, I don't know, some woman or some princess or the Smurfs, somebody's chasing it because they want to get this unicorn. It's not, it was never meant to be like a real story. But the number one idol-worshipping book in history, which is the King James Bible, New Testament, translates the word Re'em to unicorn. No less than nine times. This by itself, by the way, anyone that's still like debating Christianity, Judaism, already this by itself for me is enough proof that they're idiots. Like, I don't know, unicorn, it's a biblical animal, it's not a biblical animal, it's a cartoon. Just put Smurfs, Gargamel, and a little Pikachu are playing with Moses. Make it more interesting. Why just why just put in the unicorn? Throw some Power Rangers in there, maybe some Transformers, Pokemon. Pokemon. Ah, put it in there. Well, what? Jesus didn't have Pokemon? What kind of Jesus is he? So that's the thing. But that's the thing. When you don't know, you don't know what to look for. I had the benefit of knowing a little bit of the language. And oh, obviously, mercy from Hashem. So, when it comes down to all of these books, all of the studying that you're going to do, you have to make sure to go with reliable sources. But now, when we're trying to learn about these reliable sources, trying to learn who we're dealing with, we go back to the Mishnah, we go back to Rabbi Yochanan, and we see what he says. In the last couple of weeks, Rabbi Yochanan has told us about his five top students. I did a blessing before. Kids. So here in this week's Mishnah, last week he says that his top five students are Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinos, Rabbi Yoshua ben Hananiah, Rabbi Yosea Kohen, Rabbi Shimo ben Netanel, and Rabbi Elazar ben Arach. That's a Mishnah by itself. Now of course anyone who doesn't know, the Pirkei Avot, even though the words are exactly the same, doesn't change, from place to place, the way they're separated as far as the number of Mishnah, there's different Masorets, meaning sometimes they have one Mishnah in certain Masorets that in this book, for example, is, is, is broken down into three or four Mishnayot. So for example, here it's going to be bit, uh, it's going to be, let's say, section two or chapter two, Mishnah 11, whereas in other books, it could be Mishnah 9. So, always check the words, not necessarily the numbers, even though we still mention the numbers, just for anyone that still has this Masoet, which is popular. But it, the words are the same. So now, in this Mishnah, he told us who these giants are, and we last week, Baruch Hashem, went over it to learn some details of who these giants were. We know that Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokinos, at the end of his life, after having this huge debate with all of the rabbis, he was put on cherem. Outcast, not allowed to be in the Sanhedrin anymore, even though he was dolado. 
not allowed to be a posek anymore because you're going against the majority. And he was an outcast in essence. But he was such a giant that his student was Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was someone that Moshe Rabbeinu, when he was in Mount Sinai, Hashem showed him the future. And he showed him Rabbi Akiva teaching. He was teaching. He was teaching special wisdom that you can learn from the crowns on each one of the letters. Each one of the Hebrew letters has a crown. And Moshe Rabbeinu says to Hashem, Yitbarach, he says, Hashem, I don't understand what he's saying. Moshe Rabbeinu just got the Torah. Someone hundreds of years later is teaching the Torah that he got. And Moshe said, I don't understand. And if you have him, why are you giving the Torah to me? And then, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu got, you know, self-conscious. And then Rabbi Akiva finishes the shiur that Moshe Rabbeinu is watching. He says, and all of this we learned from Moshe Rabbeinu. He just developed it. Moshe Rabbeinu got there, he developed it. And this Rabbi Akiva was the student of Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinus. At the end of his life, Rabbi Akiva and some other students of Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinus came to Rabbi Eliezer. And he was very, very sick. And his son came to him and he, uh, it was Friday. It was a Friday. And Rabbi Eliezer ben Horkinus was still wearing the tefillin. So his son came to him, Eliezer was his name, or Hokinos, I'm sorry, his name was Hokinos, and he came to uh, take off his tefillin. And his father, Rabbi Eliezer, wouldn't let him. So Hokinos came outside, he was named after Rabbi Eliezer's father, he came outside to the uh, Rabbi Akiva and the rest of the students, he goes, I'm sorry, I think my father lost it. My father is not, uh, is not uh, he's crazy because he's not even letting me take off his tefillin. Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokinos was also called Rabbi Eliezer Gadol. He said, no, my son. He heard this. He goes, no, my son. You lost it. You're crazy. Because you, instead of being concerned about Shabbat, about the start and lighting the candle for Shabbat, you're coming to take off my tefillin. When if you are so worried about my tefillin, which is also only a rabbinical law that you're not allowed to wear tefillin on Shabbat. It's not that bad. It's rabbinical and there's ways around it, issues of muktzeh, but it's not like a yisur karet chas v'shalom It's a rabbinical. You're worried about me wearing tefillin on Shabbat. Instead of worrying about lighting the candle on time, chas v'shalom, you're going to violate Shabbat in yisur karet. You went crazy, my son. It was very Khalif, very sharp, very Pinchas, very zealous. Well, anyway, Hokinos sees these students. He's very sick. He says, Why didn't you come to visit me sooner? And they say to him, Rabbeinu, we didn't have time. What are they doing? Playing Pokemon? What do we didn't have time? What do they do? Studying Torah. We didn't have time. We're studying Torah. Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokinos says, 
It would surprise me if all of you don't die a strange death. Rabbi Akiva says, what about me, Kvodarav? He says, you are going to die the worst death of all of them where they're going to remember your death for thousands of years. And that's exactly what happened. What happens after this is amazing. He said, okay, Rabbi, you're right. I apologize for not coming till now. But now, can you teach me some Torah now? Right now. Instead of us, we think about this, we're just going to start crying. Gdolodol just told us we're going to have a strange death. Or at the very least, we're going to go home. We're going to stay here. What does Rabbi Akiva care about? Because about learning Torah. Okay, I'm going to take this strange death. You're right. I should have come. Should have come. Why did it come? So I'm going to get a strange death because of it. But can you teach me some Torah? Marat says at that point, Rabbi Eliezer ben Okino started teaching him Alachot, Tara, and Tumah. Some of the most difficult parts of the Torah, in a matter of moments, taught him over 300 Alachot. His face started glowing like Moshe Rabbeinu's face from Mount Sinai. And he goes like this with his hands. He goes, Oi, my two hands that are like two. Torah scrolls. And all the Torah that I know did not even touch the surface of the Torah of my rabbis. And all of the Torah that I taught my students is the equivalent of the water that's left on your finger after you dip it in the ocean. So he knew that his Torah was the ocean. The Torah that his students left with, Rabbi Akiva, was left with, is what's left on your finger after you dip your finger in the ocean. And his Torah, he says, is not even touching the surface of what his rabbis know. Rabbi Yochanan. So this here, in this week's Mishnah, Rabbi Yochanan continues and he says this. He continues talking about his students. Last week we learned about Rabbi Eliezer and all of the other five top students. And this week's Mishnah, it says this. Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokinos. Rabbi Yoshua ben Hanania. Asher yoladeto. Rabbi Yosea Kohen, Chassid. Rabbi Shimon ben Netanel, Yerechet. Rabbi El Azar ben Arach, Kemayan Amitkaber. Translation. He, meaning Rabbi Yochanan, used to enumerate his praises. Meaning he is looking at his students and he's counting them. Why is he counting them? Because anytime you like something, you count it. People like money, they count money all the time. People, favorite uh, movie, uh, you know, in the past was a movie called Scarface. Bunch of terrible things that happened in that movie, but nonetheless, entertaining movie for those days. The favorite scene that everybody has is when he's counting all the drug money he's making. It's a famous scene. People like money, every time, every movie these days has a money counting machine somehow. So, 
Rabbi Yochanan is enumerating their praises. He's numbering all of their good qualities of these top five students. And he says this, Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokinos is like a cemented cistern that loses not a drop. Rabbi Yoshua ben Hananiah, praiseworthy, is she who bore him, meaning his mother. Rabbi Yosiak the Kohen is a scrupulously pious person, Hasid, real Hasid, which we'll talk about in a second. Rabbi Shimo ben Netanel fears sin, and Rabbi Elazar ben Arach is like a spring flowing stronger and stronger. Okay, just like any other Mishnah on the, on the basic surface of things, it looks very simple to understand. These guys are all great. Wonderful. But you're going to make a Mishnah in the Torah? Just about this, just compliments? Think about this. If, for example, you just finished Masechet Bava Mitziah. Now, he didn't just finish the whole Masechet in one shot. He just read us approximately half a page or a page or so of the Masechet. Paragraph here. But nonetheless, if he missed one verse, like this, short, missed one verse, it's not Siyu Masechet. He didn't complete the Masechet. If he learns all of the Masechet of the Torah, of the, uh, of the Gemara, and he just forgets one line. One line. He didn't finish the Shas. If you read the Chumash every week, every week you read the Chumash, every week you read the Chumash, but Parashat Kitavo, was the section I was talking about, Hashem saying one of the punishments is if we don't do His will, we're going to eat our children. It's a big punishment. Which, by the way, happened. Happened in Bet Mikdash Rishon, happened in Bet Mikdash Shani, it also happened in the Holocaust. I had a whole shiur about it, if anybody was interested. So Hashem is not kidding. But nonetheless, if he skipped that part, he remembers it from last year. He remembers it from last year. He skipped it. Skipped that one line. He didn't finish the Chumash. You send somebody an email. Somebody says, listen, just send me an email at exactly 8 a.m. No later than 8 a.m. You could send it at 7.59. You could send it even at 6 a.m. But no later than 8 a.m. If you, As long as you send me the email by 8 a.m., I'm signing a deal with you for $10 million. It's a good deal. You send an email at 4 a.m. But what happens? You send an email at 4 a.m. 20 seconds later, return message, error. What? Says your own Reuven at Hesat Hashem. Send. Error. Again, 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 again. 801 comes. You missed it. Four hours, you're trying to send an email. You just lost a $10 million contract. You don't have any hair left on your head because you've been ripping it for the last four hours. At 8.01, he calls you. He says, what happened? He said, I've been sending the email for four hours and it's not working. He goes, what's the email? And you give him the email. He says, you're right. It's the right email. Oh, so it's not my fault. He goes, no, it is your fault. Because why? Because you missed the dot in dot com. The dot. You write an email without the dot, it's worthless. Worthless. 
You finish this Mishnah, you read everything. All the Mishnah, all Pirkei Avot. You want to do Siyum. You didn't read this Mishnah. You didn't finish the Mishnah. But here we see this Mishnah. Rabbi Yochanan, Rabban Yochanan, giving compliments to five students. This is what the Mishnah is about. What, they didn't know they were so great? They, they needed to, a, a whole Mishnah giving them compliments? So first, we need to know, there's obviously a lot more to the words, like we learn every week in this series. The first lesson that Rabban Yochanan is teaching us, when you care about something, when you love something, one of the first things that you do is you count it. Hashem says in His Torah that every day He counts the stars. Every day He counts the stars. And He has a name for each one of them. He gives Him a name. In our Torah and Science lecture that we did, we showed how the Torah in Gemara Masechet Brachot, page 32, gives us the exact number of stars in the universe that until this day, science is just finally starting to catch up to, but we already have it from then. 1064, 340, and then 12 zeros after it. Approximately 10 to the 18th power. Now, when we first came out with this number in Gemara Masechet Brachot, the Goyim were making fun of us. That what kind of number is this? They couldn't say well, it was a phone number because they didn't have phones back then. But even phone numbers have more, have, don't have that many numbers. It's one with 18 zeros after it. It's a big number. That's a mistake. Back then, what do they think? They think there was maybe a thousand stars in the, in the sky. It's what you see with your eyes. That's it. Then if you fast forward about 1,500 years to the 1600s, Galileo Galilei came out with the telescope after he stole the design from someone and said that, no, we're all wrong. There are hundreds of thousands of stars, if not millions of stars. Okay, so we already jumped, but we're still very, very far away from the 10 to the 18th power. You fast forward to 1994, Skele Mitzvot, Fast forward to 1994. NASA came out with the research and they connected the telescope that they had at the time, the most advanced one, to a supercomputer who did an estimate and they reached a number of 10 to the 21st power. Estimate, not an exact number, but an estimate, but already we see they're getting closer. It's getting hot. Fast forward another 10 years, university in Australia got down to 10 to the 18th power. Almost identical to the number that we have in the Torah from a couple of thousand years ago. So here we see that finally science is catching up to us. But now, Hashem counts these stars every day and He names them. So as He likes them. It also says several times in the Torah, anyone that goes to Parashat Shavuah, see there was many times that Hashem asked us to do a census. He asked Moshe Rabbeinu to count the people. What, Hashem forgot? He couldn't count it himself. He needs Moshe Rabbeinu to help him. Again, when you like something, you want to count it. Now people, on the other hand, they usually like the wrong stuff. So they like money, so they count money. 
Sometimes they ask the cashier to give them singles so they can count more. It feels better. <laughs> give me singles. I can count 27 singles. Well, they're like counting money. Fine, you like counting money. They like counting money. And put the hundred in the front so the girl sees the hundred. But sometimes people count their years. They count their age and they're very scared. You ask somebody how old they are. They don't even lie. They don't even five times. 20 years old. The guy's 87. What 20 years old? You just said five times. You're still scared. A guy tells you, no, 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 I'm not saying. I'm not saying. Why are you not saying? Why are you so scared? No, no, I know, I know. Some people, it's true. Listen, there is. Aina is real. If you believe in it, it is real, but it is, it does say in the Gemara, Maseret Brachot, that there are things you can do to protect yourself from Aina One of them is saying, you are a descendant of Yosef HaTzadik, who is beyond Aina and then you make your hands, do something with your thumbs, and you don't have to worry about, uh, you don't have to worry about Aina What? Ben Purat Yosef, Ben Purat Yeah. So it's a... Ainara uh, is very much real. As a matter of fact, they uh, say one of... I believe it was the... Chafetz um, Chaim, I believe. But I may be wrong with the name. I always get mis- mistakes between Chafetz Chaim. Uh, one of the other Gedolim. Um, say he died at, a, at the age of 94, but really it was 104. He hid, 100, he, he hid 10 years because of Ainara. I know that is real, but again, there is there. You know, the most important thing is not to necessarily live your life with just thinking I know is everything. I have a uh, a lot of unfortunate situations with people that don't keep Torah and mitzvot. They think that every problem in their life is because of I know. You know, my uh, business is failing. It's I know. My wife hates me. It's I know. My husband is cheating on me. It's I know. Okay, so he said, okay, maybe it is Aina. I don't know what my Let's see, what do you do? Okay, so let's see. Keep Shabbat? No. You keep Talat Mishpacha? No. Keep kosher? Sometimes. Okay, I said, okay, you know, so all those problems you have, honestly, you're lucky you're alive. <laughs> the problem, you're losing money in your business, your wife hates all that stuff, you're lucky you're alive. It's Mamash Chesed from Hashem, you're still alive. Because he said in Torah, some Mechalet Shabbat Mot Yumat. He wasn't joking. He says it 12 times in case you missed the first 11. 12 times he says it. So, people always go, Aina, 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 Okay, Aina, after you've achieved a status of keeping Torah and Mitzvot completely, keeping Shabbat, keeping all the basics, then you say, okay, maybe it's Aina. But until then, don't worry about Aina. Aina has nothing to do with you. As long as you're violating Shabbat, Aina is not your problem. Don't worry about Aina. As long as you're not keeping talat mishpacha, you're not keeping kosher, you're not honest in your business, as long as you all, all your basic level problems, I know it's not going to affect you. You have much bigger problems. Much bigger problems. But nonetheless, I know it's real. Rabban Yochanan is telling us that he enjoyed his students so much that he would count their compliments, he would count their good traits. But there's something that stood out in each one of them. Now the question I have here, I heard from my Rav, it's a good question. Now I just told you about one of his students, Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokinos. And we just discovered that Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokinos 
It's a giant of giants. A giant is an understatement. How much Torah he knew, how holy he was. If anyone reads Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, which is the book that he wrote, it was published about 500 years ago, but wrote it many, many years ago. Reads the Midrashim about him. We can't understand the significance of this person. So the question we have here is, what does he need a compliment for? The guy's a rock star. He's the best. He's a giant of giants. You need to spend a whole Mishnah telling him he's great? He knows he's great, no? His student is Rabbi Akiva. He needs a compliment. And the other ones, they're no less great. Rabbi Yoshua ben Hanania, Rabbi Yosea Kohen, Rabbi Shimon, they need a compliment? We learn Mishnah once a day, we're already... Listen, I'm Tamit Chacham. In today's generation, if you notice, there's one major difference between this generation and previous generations. If you notice, every time in the books, we refer to one of the sages. In Hebrew, a sage, there's no such word as sage. Sages are very, like, prideful word, very arrogant word. A sage, in Hebrew, is really a Talmit Chacham. Talmit Chacham. What does Talmit Chacham literally mean? A smart student. Now, we're not talking about little Avrech, 18 years old, 19 years old, just started Kolel. Tamit Chacham, we're talking about Rabbi Akiva. Tamit Chacham, we're talking about Rabbi Yochanan. We're talking about Rabbi Yosea Kohen. Talk about giants of giants, all call themselves Tamit Chacham. Tamit Chacham, people call them Tamit Chacham, they don't even call themselves anything. So in the old days, everyone that actually had some wisdom, had some knowledge in Torah, their goal in life was to be Tamit Chacham. Why? Because they knew that in order for them to be something, they always have to be a Talmud. They always have to be a student. In order to achieve something in life, you have to constantly be learning. In today's world, unfortunately, no one wants to be a Talmud. Everyone wants to be a rabbi. No one wants to be a Talmud. Everyone automatically wants to be a rabbi. They don't want to listen to the first part of the lecture. I said, Rabbi, oh, I teach, oh, I'm rabbi. You can start seeing every 16-year-old in the call in the yeshiva now, Rabbi who? Rabbi this, Rabbi that. Oh, you don't say this. Rabbi, you should call me Rabbi. No one wants to be a student. No one wants to be a Talmud Chacham. But the reality of it is that to be a Talmud Chacham, there's actually Gemara about it of what makes a Talmud Chacham a Talmud Chacham. Actually, is someone that can answer any question about any subject in general, not just Torah, everything. Good luck. So, Rabban Yochanan is counting the compliments of his amazing students. As a matter of fact, in his Mishnah, he doesn't call them Rabbi Eliezer ben Olkinos. He just says Eliezer ben Olkinos. The Mishnah and the, the writings, they add Rabbi because they are, to us they are Rabbi, but to him they are students. It's not normal for a Rabbi to call a student Rabbi. Even though it happens, still. 
So Eliezer ben Hokinos and all of these other giants are getting a compliment and we're still not able to answer this question of what do they need a compliment for? Anybody have any any answers? It's already great. No? You're getting there, you're getting there, you're getting there. Yeah. The, the, the rabbis that are mentioned in the Mishnah were higher level than the ones mentioned in Talmud. Well, Talmud comes from the Mishnah, so there's generations. All of them, all of them, all of them are mentioned in, in both, in essence. But it's all generations. So, for example, you have a uh, the first Mishnah is uh, starts with Moshe Rabbeinu, and then it tells you it goes to Yeshua Benun. Then it goes to uh, Shema, uh, you know, all of the major sages. You have uh, Shmaya Naftalion, you have uh, Bet Shemayin Bet Hilel, uh, you have Rabban Gamliel. Um, so it goes in order as far as the uh, who was, you know, as far as time. And each previous generation is greater than the one after it. So most common in Gemara are the later Tanaim uh, and the Amoraim, um, and uh, in general. They are all using, they're breaking down their information, they're breaking down what's in the Mishnah, which came from Shammai, Hillel, uh, and so on. So, previous generations are definitely always greater. But here we're still talking about early. We're still talking about in a, in a generation of Tanaim, in a generation of the giants of all giants, these were the giants. These were the greatest of great. What do they need a company? Now, a lot of people ask me business advice, and I try to run away from it because they try to run away from business because they spend enough time wasting my time in business. But, oh, Hashem, Hashem gave us some knowledge, so once in a while, if I see that it could actually help somebody, like in a real way, where it could actually help them get closer to Hashem, I'll give it to them. But in general, I try to focus more on saving Nashamot than saving money. But today, prepare something special for everyone, but especially millionaires. One of the main things that makes a company become Starbucks, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, UPS, and not the little rinky-dink operation that makes a million bucks a year. And I know a million bucks sounds like a lot of money to people, but it's really not. In the grand scheme of things, again, think of business makes a million dollars, could potentially be, I don't know, $5,000 profit. Doesn't necessarily mean there's a million dollars in profits. But sometimes it's a multi-billion dollar business, makes $500 million a year or even $50 billion a year and still make a loss. So it doesn't, you know, the revenues don't necessarily always mean profits. There's many, many companies that make billions and billions of dollars a year in, in sales but actually lose money. But nonetheless, how do you get to that point? One of the main things that the smaller companies and the small business owners consistently fail at, consistently fail out is their treatment of top producers. When a big company, it's Goldman Sachs or Merrill Lynch or any of these big firms, sees it as a superstar, Either they're trying to recruit them from somewhere else to come work for them, 
or he's was it's been with the company and has really become very successful, they're gonna invest everything and anything they possibly can to not only keep him, but to get him even greater. To give him the ambition to go from rainmaker to super rainmaker. Rainmaker meaning you're making money rain. This is business terms for anyone who doesn't know. You got a top guy, he's talented, he's ambitious, he's got dreams. That's the guy you invest in. Doesn't matter what he wants, you find a way to get it to him. He's annoying. He asks for a million and a half things. He's a baby. He needs a lot of attention. But give it to him. Find a way to make it tolerable. Why? Because that's the guy going to build you. That's the guy that's going to make you UPS. You don't become UPS with little guys that you know hope for the best. Oh, yeah, I'm just trying to survive this week. No, that, that you don't become UPS that way. You maybe stay in business. Maybe. One recession, you're probably out of business. But nonetheless, if you have everyone average, you're, not, you're probably not going to make it very far. Napoleon, Napoleon, which is known as somebody that was a, uh, one of the top leaders, killer too, but nonetheless a leader, they asked him questions all the time. He says, what's so special about your soldiers? He says, all of my soldiers want to be generals. That's the type of soldier that I want. If my soldier wants to be a soldier, I don't want him as a soldier. If someone wants to be average, I don't want him to work for me. I don't want average guys. I want someone that wants my position. I want someone that wants to be CEO. I want someone that wants to be CFO. I want someone that has ambition, has a big mind, wants to be a top guy. But, where's the problem? Problem number one is that most small businesses don't know how to treat that guy. You got a hurricane coming to your little rinky-dink company. The guy wants to rebuild the, the Hoover Dam. And you're like, no, slow down, son. We don't go so fast here. Okay, well, son's going to go to the company that goes faster. And then you're going to lose all the revenues. Or the guy goes and he goes and he goes and he produces and he produces and he produces and he asks you, he's like, listen, can I have a little raise? You know, I mean, I did build your company by 50% in the last year. Can I have a $10 raise? $10. The guy says, no, you know, we're tight. We're not really sure if we're going to make it this year. How do I know this? This happened to me a few times. When I first started in the investment business, I worked for a couple of firms. One of the places that I worked at was a small place. And the guy was much like the modern-day Paul. We'd come in. I'd have to leave my house maybe like 5.30 in the morning, 6 o'clock in the morning, get to the office, already on, you know, working on the phones, Eight o'clock in the morning, straight till eight o'clock at night with a half hour break in between. No salary. And on top of it, the only way you can actually make any money is if you actually got a client. 
which is not easy to get a client. But on top of it, if you had a um, personal phone call, he'd dock your pay. So, and each client, it's not like you were getting, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars for each client like he is, you get a hundred bucks. He makes five thousand, he makes a thousand, he makes twenty thousand, you make a hundred dollars. So even if you're phenomenal and you get ten guys a month, you get ten clients a month, you get a thousand bucks. A little bit like slavery. But you don't know, you're 18 years old, what do you know? You're working 12 hours, 14 hours a day, plus you're traveling three hours a day back and forth to work, to the city. Anyway, Baruch Hashem, Hashem gave me the gift of gab, I was very ambitious, I was working, within a matter of a few months, I became not only the top guy there, but I became the trainer. I started training everybody else, all the other new guys. But he's still collecting all the money, I'm still making nothing. So one day I said, listen, can I have a raise? Can I have at least 30 bucks a day? 30 bucks a day. So that covers my expenses to get to work. 30 bucks. He said, okay, fine, fine. I'll give you 30 bucks a day. Like it was like a big uh, metzia. He just gave me the uh, one of the treasures of Yosef HaTzadik. Yosef HaTzadik had three treasures. Am Yisrael found one. Koach found two. I got three from this guy. 30 bucks a day. He's buying Porsches and houses and all types of stuff and jewelry from my, you know, I see it. And I'm 30 bucks a day. End of the month, I see my check, supposed to be $1,800. I got like 18, a 16 accounts or 18 accounts plus what's supposed to be a few hundred dollars. I see my check, like $900. It was like literally cut by like two thirds. No, every month there was always a problem. Every month there was always a problem. It was always nickel and diming or something. So he found an excuse of why the accounts didn't do this, didn't do that, that, that. Okay, fine. No, okay. So what about the thirty bucks a day? Fine. Let's okay. Let's the accounts. This is delays. Whatever excuse you have, we have excuse every month. What about the thirty bucks a day? At least thirty bucks a day, five days a week. It's at least six hundred dollars. Where is that? Oh no, you had. Only you started uh, that day. You started at eight oh one instead of eight. So instead of paying me 30, you actually lost 50. And that day, you actually had a personal phone call that went into my time instead of you know, starting at 12.30 again. It was 12.30 and 14 seconds. And he started nickeling and dining me, and I just lost it. I, lost, I didn't have to care about it. I lost it. I almost you know, wanted to kill the guy, but I left. I left. Now, he thought he was doing good. He was saving a few hundred bucks. Little did he know that a few years later he would be working for me. I fired him four months later, though. He was a thief. No, no, chasu shalom. No, I, I'm a businessman. When I was in business, I was doing business. Not getting back. I don't do tit tat wars. I don't play little kids' games. I fired him because he was a thief. I had him work, I, I hired him to actually become a manager because even though he was like Paro, you need a little bit of Paro to be a good manager in a uh, business like that. But he was uh, Paro plus Potiphar. <laughs> so anyway, so I threw him out. But that was one. Next company I went, I built my career. I worked for a company called Raymond James. Raymond James is a decent sized firm. I came there after this guy. And in the beginning, I was broke. But a year into it, I became one of the top producers. And two years into it, I became number three in the entire country. 
had five, six thousand brokers. I became this little twenty-year-old kid, becomes number three. CEO of Raymond James, huge company, calls my office. Who's this guy? And I'm this little guy. I'm just excited to be alive. Making, you know, already made my first million dollars. Everything is fantastic. So now I'm thinking, okay, it's time for me to leave. I'm going to do something, make a move. A bunch of different firms are offering me money. One firm offered me three and a half million dollars, three point six million dollars to walk in, but there was one condition: I'd have to give them all of my clients' money and invest it into their, you know, fake stocks. Meaning, I'm going to steal all the money, or they're going to steal the money and just give me a piece of it. I'm not a thief, even when I was secular. So I told them they could fly a kite. And then a few other companies offered me money, but it wasn't the right deal. Long story short, I went to a guy that I met. And I told him, "Listen, I don't really want much. All I want—I mean, I have people offering me hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars, and so on. All I really want is independence. I'll work in your office or my office, whatever you want. It doesn't really make a difference to me. But I want this payout, which was fair—a 70% payout—and I want $125,000, which is nothing. He makes it a month later." And the guy's like, listen, the 70, maybe I could do, but the 125,000, I'm not going to do. I can't do it. Da, 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 they're not going to approve it. They're not this, they're not that. I'm like, yeah, but if I come there, I officially become number one. But not just number one. I become pretty much 60% of the firm, 70% of the firm on day one. Before I became like really, really big. So big. You're not going to give me $100,000? Okay, whatever. You don't want to give it to me? Fine, no problem. A few days later, some other firm called me. I told him, listen, just give me 90%. Pay out, but no money. No money up front. Sure, why not? Excited. They hire me. If he would have hired me, he would have made the money back a month later. If he would have hired me, he would have made around 10 times that money a year later. If he would have hired me, he would have made about 10 times that in one day. Two years later. I find, I, you know, I became famous, I became successful, and so on and so forth. And uh, one day, you know, people find out. One day I see him, and he says to me, uh, how are you? At the time, he's like, listen, biggest mistake of my career is I didn't give you the $100,000. Why? Because people are penny-wise, dollar-foolish. Now, if you're a real producer, if you're a real success... If you're a real shark, then you have to have the mentality of first you do, then you ask. The problem today is everyone does it opposite. They learn backwards. They ask for the world and they never do. I had plenty of those come work for me. Plenty of people come to me and they tell me, listen, I'm going to be like you. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this and I want this and I want They have already demands. Before I even see their resume, they have demands for me. And they're going to do this. And I even had one time a guy come, young kid, maybe 25, 24, something like that. I haven't uh, you know, interviewed so many people. And I have this guy, he sits back and he puts his feet on my desk. <laughs> I'm just entertained by these people. I'm like, oh, okay, so what's, what's, you know, what's his deal? He goes, I want your job. <laughs> Uh-huh. Special people. I don't mind giving you my job. What can you do? Guy can barely spell. 
So anyway, many people, they ask first, do later. That's why this generation is full of unhirable people. This generation is full of people that are losers. But they're losers by choice. They're not losers because they don't know anything. They lose because they choose to be losers. They want conditions. They want to work at you know conditions like everyone works at Google. Google has a lunchroom there, and they have a place you can sleep, and they have this. Yeah, but what people most people don't understand about Google is that every single person that works there is a genius. I had them as clients. They're geniuses. They're people that uh, something special in each one of them. And on top of it, on top of it, they work nonstop. Yes, they sleep during the day, but they also work till two o'clock in the morning. You know, so people think they're going to walk into Wall Street and, you know, they're going to get the CEO's job or they're going to get a million dollars a year or graduate college and they're going to start with $100,000 a year. It's not going to happen. If you graduate with anything other than top five in your class, you're just a regular kid. And you may not even get a job other than being like a clerk or, I don't know, secretary or a basic job. UPS, I don't know, something very, very basic. Why? Because that's how the world works. You have to build yourself. One day you become CEO if you're ambitious. So when you come to a company and you start asking for a million and a half things, you become unhirable, you become intolerable, and no one wants to deal with you. And you're never going to make it. You're going to be the guy that talks about everyone else making money. You're going to be the guy that talks about baseball players and how much money they make. You're never going to have money. You're just going to watch the baseball games on TV. You're going to talk about how Derek Jeter has, I don't know, $300 million a year. Great, okay. So, does he pay your bill? You're going to talk about other people's money your whole life, but you're never going to have any. So that's the problem with this generation. We're always wanting, but never actually doing. Now, that's the problem on the employee side. If you're a superstar, then you have to start... Doing and then asking. But when you ask, be reasonable. Don't say, listen, I made a million dollars last year for the company. I want the whole store. You know, you still have to give them room to make money. You're not the only one that's going to make money. Everyone else has to be, you know, has to survive also. And as long as they're paying the bill and taking the biggest part of the risk, they have to make more than you. As soon as it gets to a point where you make more than them, it's not worth it for them to keep you. It's just a reality. Now... In America, there's more liability than most other places, which means that if you are if you are going to uh, produce a certain amount of money, you're also liable for that amount of money. Meaning that if you produce a million dollars worth of revenues, most likely you are at, the, the company is at risk for at least a million dollars. Which means that that profit that they're making, let's say you brought a million dollars and they actually, you know, profit out of the million dollars, let's say two hundred thousand dollars. It's not really 100% profit because if someone ever sues you, most likely they're going to sue you for at least a million. So don't always think that you're that profitable for the company. Now, employee lesson in a 101 finished. Employer. Employers, the reason why they stay small is because they don't know how to treat the super superstars when they find them. They're so hard to find this generation because most people are losers, like I told you. Most people want everything and do nothing. So... When you actually find the diamond in the rough, you got to do whatever you can to keep him and build him and complement him, whatever it is. You got obviously within reason and you know legal grounds. 
But the point is, is that what happens is, is that so many small companies are penny-wise, dollar-foolish, we tell them, listen, I just increased your revenues, your uh, whatever, by 50% over the last six months since I've been here. Can I have $300? Like, company just made 100000 off of you. If you're asking for $300 and they say no, you're in the wrong company. You have to leave immediately. Why? Because they're the type of people where they don't want to go to the bathroom because then they have to buy food again. <laughs> they're too cheap. And being cheap is a horrible, horrible midah. As a matter of fact, it's one of the people that Hashem hates. Because it's the exact opposite of him. He only gives. When someone is stingy, he's the opposite of Hashem. Opposite. This also goes within regards to tzedakah. Many people, for some reason or another, believe that we somehow we live off of man. Like we did tshuva, so Hashem sends us man from Shemaim. Say, listen, can you send, can you send me three hundred CDs? Yes, just go to the website. There's a terminal. Put three hundred dollars. We send you three hundred CDs. That's never a thought. I'm like, okay, it's the dollar a dollar a CD. You buy twenty dollars garbage CDs for one CD. I give you a dollar CD. It could change your life. No, it's too much. You have a coupon. You have a coupon for it, 50% off. No one ever thinks, no, you know, it's... Or I say, listen, can you send one of the Kiruv packages? Kiruv packages, I don't know if any of you guys saw the recent flyers uh, that uh, Boch Hashem was making. Sani and Sadiq made it for us. Um, you know, Kiruv package costs anywhere from $90 to $200. It's a life-changing package full of CDs, books, a bunch of things. Cost, you know, it costs money. We give it for free. But if you can sponsor it, sponsor it. Everybody's like, the calls, oh, can you send it to my friend and the other friend? And can you actually just send me two of them? Just in case I have somebody? Like, I just, you know, like, it, it, it became like a, uh, you know, they think non-profit means that it just doesn't cost any money. Non-cost. Non-cost, exactly. So, people have to understand that, again, everything costs money. But most importantly, when it comes to tzedakah, just, you guys need to know, rule of thumb, forget whether it's me or you give it to somebody else, it doesn't make a difference. That's your investment. You have to decide what you're investing in yourself. When it comes to tzedakah, if it doesn't hurt a little bit, it's not enough. If it's, you're comfortably giving, I don't know, let's say $100 a month, it's comfortable, it doesn't bother your life, you're not giving enough tzedakah. Not giving enough tzedakah. How do I know? We have a gemara. We have Nakdimon Ben Gurion, one of the giants gvirs in the times of Rabbi Akiva. He was one of the three richest men in the land that supported the entire nation. When we were surrounded by the enemy, they had enough money to, to feed the entire nation for three years straight. He's very, very rich. Very successful and a big tzaddik. One day, one of the sages sees his daughter, Nakdimon's daughter, picking the grains out of the waist of a horse. He says, What are you doing? So I'm looking for food. She's starving, she's looking for food. He says, Who are you? She shows her face. He goes, wait, your father is the richest man of the land. He says, no, he used to be. 
He used to be the richest man in the land. He says, how could that be? She says, he didn't give enough tzedakah. When someone understands who's the real balabait, who's the real owner of your money, who's the real owner of your bank account, who's the real owner of, of the company you work for that's providing you the money, who's the real owner of your customers that are providing you this, who controls everything. When someone really understands that it's only a shemit barach, it has nothing to do with your talent. Nothing. Like everything I just told you up to now, I made this, I made this, I made this. It's not I made it. Obviously Hashem gave it to me. But nonetheless, the point is, is that when someone really truly understands that, it's easy to give stakam. Why? It's not your money. He's just giving it to you to use it to support Torah. He's not giving it to you so you buy 15 houses. Yes, you can buy a house. Enjoy. But if you're buying a house but everybody else in the street is homeless... You have a problem. If you have a $15,000 carpet, but your next door neighbor can't afford to pay for the yeshiva for his kid, and you're not doing anything about it, you have a problem. So, when Shem gives you wealth, or even just basic level success, you have to treat the money like it's not yours, because it really isn't. So, if you're giving money, you know, you're making, I don't know, $30,000 a year, $50,000 a year, $100,000 a year, you have to give in proportion. Now, if you're making $60,000 plus a year, but every time you give it to the guy, it's $18, you have a problem. You have a serious problem. So, again, like I said, even though my shulim are not necessarily money raisers, the point is that you have to understand who's the boss of your money. This is an important Torah lesson for people because I constantly see people, and I, you know, some once in a while, I stay in touch with people and I see who they are, and they, you know, we, they have websites, they have companies, and they're CEO of this company or the CEO of that company, and the guy sends you stuck off for eighteen dollars. I know the guy makes I don't know maybe uh, fifteen twenty thousand dollars a month. He sends you eighteen dollars. I almost want to return it to the guy. <laughs> but the reality of it is that you can't stop somebody from doing a mitzvah. At the same token, he may not have the, have the merit to do kiruv. But still, you need to know that if you're giving tzedakah, it's not tzedakah for Torah, it's just tzedakah for I don't know, saving whales and butterflies. You have to do some cheshbonot nefesh to figure out what's wrong because... You don't have the merit to do Kiruv or to at least support Torah. So, moving on. Abban Yochanan is telling us here the reason why I'm complimenting my students is because in order for them to go from the greatness that they are right now to even greater levels, you need some moral support. You need to hear a compliment once in a while. Even though you already know that you're a producer, even though you already know you're amazing, even though you see the numbers yourself. You see it. You see, hey, I got this video. It's got 37,000 views. Next competitor is 300 views. You know, oh, you're doing good. You are top guy. Everybody else, not. 
I got one company I worked for, we were almost 50% of the total revenues for their entire company. It was me, as 42% of the company, 299 other people were the other 60%. You know where you stand. You know, I mean, you're making the money, the money goes into the bank, the reviews are on the internet, the compliments come in, the, uh, you know, all the stuff comes in, you know what's going on. But the most valuable stuff is a little text message. Hey, good job. By somebody that you care about. Ima telling you, Chazaku Baruch, priceless. Abba telling you, wow, I learned something in that shiva. Chazaku Baruch, your whole world is now worthwhile. Your Rav telling you, did a good job today. You know you did a good job. But he acknowledged it. It's the best thing in the world. It was worth coming to the world just for that moment. One of the Gdoledo in the past generation, the name starts with a G, but I don't want to mispronounce it. Anyway, huge giant rub. One day, he uh, goes to one of his students' wedding. You know, and everybody's celebrating to the top. Eventually, the Rav gets tired. He goes and he sits next to the mechitza. Kosher weddings have mechitza, have separation. There's one side for women, one side for men. You're not allowed to dance together. And just because sometimes religious people have them dance together doesn't mean it's kosher. Like I told you, a beer doesn't cost any money. That's why people grow it. Doesn't mean you're a tzaddik. But anyway... He sits next to the mechitza, and then he sees an old woman peeking from the mechitza. He says, "Excuse me, are you Rabbi So and So?" Says, "Yes, I'm Shmuel. His name was Shmuel. I'm Shmuel. I think it was Grodinsky, but I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right. Yeah, I'm Shmuel." He says, "Oh, yeah, 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 yeah." What? It's wow, 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 wow. You know, she's like one of these old ladies that like, you know, she talks to Hashem while she makes couscous. She prays next to the mezuzah. You know, old ladies, old timers, Moroccan, Tripoli, one of the Middle Eastern people that are amazing and closer to Hashem than we could ever be. But, you know, very simple people. She says, are you a rabbi? Yeah, wow, well, well, Every time he says yes, wow, 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 wow. And he's like, what happened? After five minutes of wow, wow, wow. He goes, why? Like, please tell me what? What's on? She goes, my son was in your yeshiva. You were his teacher. How much he loves your shiurim. He's so happy with your shiurim. What shiurim you give? Wow, wow, wow. He's so happy. And the Rav says, this simple woman, this simple old-fashioned woman, just her saying, wow, to my shurim and how much her son enjoyed the shurim, it gave me the type of feeling I didn't have in decades of happiness. It was all worth it for that woman to tell me that, wow. Now he has books, he has colleagues, he has students, but the little wow, the little simple wow, said it was life-changing for 
when you work really hard, yeah, it's nice that your co-workers say, you're working really hard today. You really, don't you think you should go home? Yeah, it's nice. It's nice everybody knows that you work hard. It's nice that everybody knows you're successful or not, or trying to be. But once in a while, you have this one special person in your life. If they say, well, it's all worth it. Sometimes it's your wife. Sometimes it's your husband. Sometimes it's your kid. Sometimes it's your teacher. Sometimes it's just some manager that works in a different department, but you look up to him. So if you ever have somebody, you want to inspire them to be great, start complimenting them. But compliment them for right reason. And that's one of the major failures we have in the current generation, where we compliment for the wrong reason. We have competitions for 20 kids, and all 20 kids get trophies. They call it participation trophies. Now, from experience, I can tell you that all we're doing is we're breeding losers. Because now what happens is that everyone is going to expect a trophy just for showing up. You don't get a trophy for showing up to life. You don't get Allah just for being born into a Jewish family. You don't get to be a Talmud Chacham just because you read Parashat Shavua. You want to succeed in life, requires Mesirut Nefesh. In the Gemara, Masechet Brachot. Gemara asks, how do you get to a point of being a Talmud Chacham? It's interesting how I have a second battery that one of my students got me and... For some reason, the phone's dying anyway. Okay, So, the Gemara asks, how do I get to be a point, how do I get to a point of being a Tamit Chacham? It says, Torah is not acquired except to studying with companions. First and foremost, you have to have a Chavuta. You can't study by yourself. And this is in accordance with the words of Rabbi Yossi, the son of Hanina. Of Rabbi Hanina. For Rabbi Yossi, the son of Rabbi Hanina, said, regarding that which was written, which is in Jeremiah, chapter 50, verse 36, There will be a sword against those who are alone. So in essence, the first part of the Gemara says, you must study with somebody. But if you look at some of the biggest giants in history, not all of them always study with a chavuta. Some of them study alone. So how, could, how do we explain that? This doesn't necessarily mean that you have to study with someone all the time. It means you have to have a study partner, a rav, that you could balance ideas off of, to check yourself. And this is also one of the failures I see very often, where, for whatever reason or another, everyone wants to be rashi overnight. They start learning Torah last week. This week they already became Rashi. They don't want to read the Torah without commentary. Without commentary. No, no Moshe came from Nazareth. Okay, this is what it means. What did Rashi say? The opposite. You're not right. Rashi's not wrong and you're right. Now, yes, there's a whole concept in the teaching that every single one of you special souls has chidushim and shamayim that are meant only for you. Meaning, 
No one will ever get them other than you. Doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get them. You have to earn them. But there are chidushim and understandings, meaning insights from the Torah, that only you, each one of you, can understand. No one will ever get them other than you. So there is that concept in Judaism. But, what's a chidush? How do you know that your chidush is right? How do you know? First and foremost, anytime you have a chidush, anytime you read something and the basic level commentary, let's say you read Rashi or Rambam, Tosfot, they don't mention it. Something You have a new insight. It's not written in the basic level commentary. So that could potentially be a chidush. be a new concept, new insight you got. But then you have to check it. You have to check it in different places. Because obviously, if they wrote the old Midrashim in one book, it would be from here to Alaska. So it's in a lot of books. Anyway, you start checking different sources. Once you start checking different sources, you see if anyone wrote it. If, let's say, you are privileged enough and have the merit to have something that no one wrote, at least nothing that you can find, it could potentially be your chidush. But how do you know it's valid? As long as it doesn't contradict anything that came before you. Meaning, if your chidush contradicts what Rashi said, it's wrong. Cannot be right. You can never be right and Rashi is wrong. Ever. You can never be right and Rambam is wrong. Ever. You can never be right and Rabbi Akiva is wrong. Ever. Never ever. Ever, 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 ever. So, your chidush has to agree or complement an existing understanding. Can't contradict it. So once it agrees with it, complements it, then you're on the right track. It's still not 100%, by the way. How do you know the next step? You go to Tamit Chacham. Which at that point should either be your Chavuta or your Rav. And you verify. Now, if you don't have a love, what's going to happen? Sodom and Gomorrah is going to happen. Why? Because you're going to get to some chidush one day. Especially Satan gives you chidushim once in a while. Why? Because he wants you to go the wrong off. He wants to become a kofir. So he tells you, you understand something no one else understands. You are the Rashi of the generation. Like we have, actually we have some people like this. We have a guy... Rav, the rabbi, he says, Rambam is wrong, Rashi's wrong, everyone's wrong, I'm right. What? Goyim are allowed to keep Shabbat. What Goyim are allowed to keep Shabbat? Who says this? He became, no, he understands the word Gel differently than everyone else before him. Everyone's an idiot except this guy from this generation. The worst generation in history, he's right, everyone else is wrong. The people that were able to revive the dead are wrong, and this guy that walks around with a t-shirt, he's right. This is what happens. Pride comes before the fall. What happens? Why, why do we get to such a whole horrible, horrible situation where a rabbi thinks he's Rashi? Because he didn't have a Rav. He likes a bunch of rabbis. He didn't have a Rav. A Rav, according to the Torah, you have to be something that's connected to, and you have to fear him like a fear of God. 
Fear him, like fear of God, respect him. And someone that you hold to and connect to. Not someone that's like, when you're next to him, you're a tzaddik, when after he leaves, you bring all the prostitutes. You know, a lot of people do this at weddings. They invite their rabbi and all the rabbi's friends. Everybody looks like a tzaddik, navon, oh yeah, chupak, kiddushin, okay. After, you know, rabbis are not going to stay at the wedding. Rabbis leave after the chupak and kiddushin. What are they going to do at the wedding? They're not dancing with you. They chupak, kiddushin, they go, they continue being rabbis. They continue helping people, they continue learning Torah. So they go. And what happens? Everyone all of a sudden starts taking off the clothes and the music starts and the wigs come off. Shem Elachem. What, God doesn't see you? What, he left too? What happened? So first and foremost, know that Hashem sees you. Second, if you really have a real connection with a Rav, you never disrespect him like that. You have to be connected to somebody. So that's the thing. What happens a lot today is that people don't have this chavuta. And here it says, someone that doesn't have a chavuta, doesn't have someone that he can connect to, Eventually they become foolish and err in their rulings. And it gives all types of support of why they end up becoming foolish and make mistakes. And eventually their ways become synonymous with sin. Meaning their whole life becomes one big sin. They learn to love, but they're just big sinners. How do you get to a point of being a Talmid Chacham, grind yourself over the words of Torah, meaning exert, excuse me, exert yourself to the utmost in order to acquire Torah. According to Resh Lakish, one of the most famous, greatest Baalei Tshuva in history, used to be a gangster, the top of the mafia, became a Baal Tshuva, one of the students, and became the Chavuta of Rabban Yochanan, the same Rabban Yochanan that's talking about the students right now. This was his Chavuta. Resh Lakish says, The words of Torah are not retained except by one who kills himself over the Torah. Meaning, you want to become Tamit Chacham? You want to even have a chance of knowing anything? You want to have a chance of knowing any Torah? Get ready to exert yourself, Mamash, until you feel like you're dying. But that's how you get life. So now, these very same Tzadikim, Nevonim, Chachamim, giants, still need a compliment. So if they need a compliment, what about your little kid? Just started school, but he's not really getting that great grades. Or the principal keeps complaining about him. Every three days, principal calls, oh, your kid is making trouble. Maybe he has ADHD. Everybody in this generation has ADHD. Everybody became retarded. No, they're just kids. Or autistic. They love to use autistic. Yeah, they're autistic, they're bipolar, they're ADHD, they this, they're that. They're in a special class. 
Everybody needs a special class. Everybody needs a special tutor or a special this. The only thing we really need is special is regular teachers, normal teachers that have patience. In the old days, just so you know, in the old days, who were the teachers of the youngest kids, little kids? Little, little kids, like, you know, five years old, six years old. Usually, in today's world, the higher level of the class, the older the people, the higher level of the teacher. Meaning, the one that's teaching, let's say, you know, first grade to fifth grade is just an average teacher, just, you know, graduated school and probably 20, 25 years old. And he's teaching these little kids. You want to be a professor, you have to have a degree, you have to have a PhD, you have to have a D and this and that, all these different things on your business card. And you are 45, 50 years old, unless you're very, very smart, uh, and you become a professor. But you're a professor, not for five-year-old kids, you're a professor for 20, 25-year-old kids. So in essence, the more accomplished the teacher the more accomplished the student. In the old days, the lowest level students, the little kids who would teach them, the gdoledo, the giants of the generation, the exact opposite of today. Why? Because they knew that if you build a good foundation, the rest becomes easy. But if the foundation is rotten, you're already lost. If the six, seven, eight, nine, and 10 year old are all being taught by teachers who don't have enough patience to tell them just to sit down and be quiet and listen to the math problem. Just to sit down and be quiet and have some patience. The break is going to start in a half hour. Just to sit down and be quiet and listen to a fun story. They don't have enough patience to deal with the little kid by the time he's 12, 13, 14 years old. He doesn't even want to be Jewish. There are actually some schools in Israel, yeshiva, to talk about. Secular schools, obviously, it's not even part of the conversation. I mean, they teach you that you came from a monkey. I can't help that. Someone that thinks that they came from a monkey, they probably came from a monkey. The rest of us came from other human beings. But yeshivot are reporting horrible, horrible statistics where there are some places in Israel where over 80% of the kids that go to yeshiva their whole life get off the derech. They become secular. 80%. You're better off going to public school, Hashem Yerachem. You're better off not going to school. 80% of the students leave the derech. What are you teaching them? To be a sniper? What are you teaching them? How bad could school possibly be that 80% leave the derech? What are they, beating them up all day? What are they using them as showing them the, the lessons of Mitzrayim but actually making them all slaves? What are you teaching them that 80% are leaving the derech? The problem is that some of this stuff is also happening here. Some of the rabbis are crazy. Some of the rabbis are crazy. Some of the, a lot of things are crazy. But a lot of this stuff is also happening here where you have a lot of kids go to yeshiva. How about the girls? I think the girls get affected worse. Everyone gets affected. I remember I went to school. I went to Binghamton University which was a decent school in New York college and because most of the kids in that school were Jewish even though it was a uh, state school over 60 or 70 percent of the kids that came there graduated from yeshiva this is the first my first encounter with yeshiva kids I was I went to the public school I uh, didn't uh, 
didn't have any uh, any type of connection to yeshiva kids. And uh, I don't know how this works. If you could figure out how this works, it would be good. It's supposed to charge the battery or make it work without it. Um, it says it has a battery, but it says it has four levels of battery, so how come it doesn't turn on? Or I don't figure it out. Okay. So anyway, for me, it was, I was, you know, I was in public school my whole life, and uh, or whatever, my whole life in America. So seeing all these yeshiva kids was new to me. Interestingly enough, the worst kids in the school and university that I went to, the worst were yeshiva kids. The ones that made the biggest trouble, yeshiva kids. The girls, shemerachem, promiscuity, yeshiva girls. So, you know, their parents are at home celebrating their kid went to college. They're going to get a degree. They're going to be doctor, lawyer, this. What do they have? They have an idol worshiper coming home. They have a kofir coming home. They have a girl that they, they went, she went there with skirt, she came back with mini. Or a bathing suit. What happened? First and foremost, college is not for everybody. Unless you have a direct reason of why you're going there, you shouldn't. Especially from people. Second of all, it really depends on who you're, what you're, you know, how you were brought up. If you have strong education to get you to that point, not you got good grades, strong relationship with rabbis, rabbinites, strong spine in general, strong foundation at home, is a, and there's obviously a reason to go, then some people have a, you know, a, uh, they should go to college and become something because maybe they're not going to be an avrech or, uh, you know, a uh, rabbinit. They should. You want to get a special profession, want to be a doctor, want to be a lawyer, an architect, something that actually requires a degree. Yeah, you should. But if you're, if you had horrible teachers or you weren't really that good in school in general, or you don't really have that good of a foundation at home, the worst thing you can do is go to college. Why? Because you have complete freedom. Complete freedom to do everything wrong. So, it's extremely important that people are, you know, sending our kids to YU and this you and that you, and just because it's called yeshiva, they think it's good, or just because they, you know, it's, a, uh, it's called a certain thing, they think... You have to understand, college is college. Young kids are young kids. Unless you, you build a solid foundation for this kid, as a kid, to know that Yirat Shemaim comes number one. Unless the kid has Yirat Shemaim, he's not going to survive. He's going to have to become a Baal Tshuva later. In more cases than not. Yeah, he's going there through, because he went to Yeshiva. But as soon as he goes to school, there's a bunch of... Goim, secular people, he's going to be making friends with a bunch of people. He's in New York, he's in San Francisco, he's in Las Vegas, he's in uh, California, he's in all these different places. We're not, it's not, we're not in a Bet uh, Migdash here. We're in Mitzrayim. He's going to go there, he's going to be friends with all these people. Unless he has a serious foundation of Yirat Shamayim, most likely he's not going to survive. Most likely he's going to become secular. Or at least he's going to become very, very weak. And you're going to have to help him become a Baal Tshuva. You're going to have to help him come back to Hashem. Four years, eight years of that stuff, you're lucky if he stays Jewish, Bechlam. 
Why? Because, number one, the foundation of our teaching in many places are horrible. In some cases, people think that, you know, Kiruv teaching, like Torah proofs, and uh, science, and things like that, are only for like Baal Tshuvas. In reality, Kiruv should be taught in every single yeshiva. Because they all need it. I have kids, young kids, they go to yeshiva, they finish yeshiva. Some, some of these, I don't know what kind of yeshivas they have. Some, sometimes, obviously, some of them are phenomenal. But some of these kids, I see them, obviously, after the fact. Kids, 18 years old, doesn't know how to do math in his head. Or he doesn't know anything about, like, basic science. It's like, what did you learn? He goes, oh, we learned Torah. Okay, but since, like, what kind of Torah you learn? I start asking him questions about Torah, he doesn't even know Torah. What did you learn for so many years? Oh, no, I listened to the rabbi talk. It's done on YouTube, free. You have to pay $500 a month for that. So that's the thing. So parents have to take responsibility for the kids' education. You can't just trust people just because they have a beard. You can't just trust... Oh, but it's only 3%. What happened? We has to start charging it now. Oh, so why, why wasn't it charging? Zero, obviously. So okay. you fixed it. Perfect. It's a dick. The button had to be in the middle, I think, in the back. Oh. Okay, so try it. I'll try it. I don't it. think it's going to hold Facebook on 3%. Yeah, it's going to hold it. Hashem made it work at zero. We can work at 3% too. So, we continue. Sorry, Facebook people. The battery died, but let's see. Mike, my student, Tadik from New York, Nubal Chuva. Um, bought me this charger thing, so maybe it worked. It's not the show. So, so now, now you know that every minute of this show that continues on Facebook is his chut. It's worth it. So anyway, parents need to be taking responsibility for doing some research on the yeshivas they send the kids. The yeshivas need to take some responsibility for upgrading their teachings and making them more modern. You know, yes, mishnayot, humashim. All of that obviously must be the foundation, but you can't make the kid retarded socially. I Meaning, you have to teach him math, you have to teach him some basic level science. Maybe you don't necessarily need to waste any time on European history and uh, I don't know uh, anthropology, but you know some basic level education of things that he's going to use in the real world is necessary. He needs to know how to use a calculator at some point. You know, he needs to you know he needs to know some basic level science, like what's mitosis, meiosis, biology. Let him I don't know. A, uh, rip open a couple of worms just to see what the you know what the world looks like. You know it's it's, it's necessary. They shouldn't leave school. Shouldn't leave yeshiva completely unemployable anywhere else outside of the religious communities. It's not healthy. But at the same token, all of this teaching, everything I'm saying whether it's the college one, or the yeshiva one, or the responsibility of the parents, or the responsibility of the teachers, or the responsibility of the student, none of it is going to work without a little bit of complimenting once in a while. The student's not going to want to do it. There was a Rosh Yeshiva that one time called the father, and he said, listen, your son is awful. He makes balagan in the shul. He is constantly annoying everyone, annoying me, annoying this. You got to take him out of here. And the father was a rabbi. Is there anything good about my son? Anything at all? Is one midah, one, one thing that's good about him? 
said, yeah, you know what, there is. He said, well, what is it? He goes, he always comes on time. He's always coming. The only one in the school always comes on time. He's like, how about this? Do me a favor. Let's just try one time. Just give him a compliment every day that he came on time. For a month. Okay, last chance. Last chance. Within one month, the Rosh Yeshiva told the story, real story. So the student became number one student in the entire Yeshiva. Why? Just a little complimenting. A little bit. I failed at this miserably, by the way, in the, in the business world. Today, I try to compliment my students, but in the business world, I only compliment the top guys. You're an average guy, go somewhere else. But you can't, you can't, you can't only have top people. Rabban Yochanan had tens of thousands of students. These are the top five, though. He's not talking about all 10,000 students. He's talking about five. So that's the first thing. What did each one of these have that made them so special? Rabbi Eliezer ben Holker also says, Bul tipa. Says a cistern that doesn't lose even a drop. Chazal explained that this means that Rabbi Elizabeth ben Okinos, everything that his teachers teach him, he never forgets it. It's like a cement. It's like a well, but it's all wrapped, it's all cement. Water doesn't go anywhere. Even though sometimes the water gets a little stale, but it stays in there. You get maximum. Now, last week, if you guys remember... We talked about how there was an argument between, between Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokinos and all of the sages. It got to a point where they said, you're on Cherem, you go your way. We mentioned it today also. You go your way, alone, you're out of the Bedin. And when this happened, Chazal says that Hashem wanted to destroy the world. The whole world started shaking, there was earthquakes, the sea started shaking everywhere. Anyway, eventually, Rabban Gamliel begged Hashem, said, listen, I didn't put him on Cherem because of my own honor, I did it for Kvodah Torah, and so on. But the question still remains. If Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkinus was so smart, such a tzaddik, why don't you just say, listen, you know what, guys? Even though I think I'm right, fine, okay. Whatever you want. I... Alakha goes to you. Even an average bull can do that. An average person just started learning uh, Aleph Bet yesterday. You ask him, listen, do you agree? They agree. About what? I don't know. I agree. Why don't he just agree? Instead of being put on Cham for the rest of his life. Anybody ask themselves this? How can such a smart person make something that seems? Foolish. This Mishnah explains to us exactly what it means. When Aban Yochanan says he's a bull, is a is a bull suit, it's a cemented cistern that doesn't lose a drop. Chazal explains to us is that every single thing that his teachers ever taught him, he remembers. But not like memory like us, but in a sense like he just learned it right now. 
We learned something now. 20 minutes after the lecture, I asked you, what did you hear from the lecture? You asked each other, what did you hear from the lecture? Maybe you're going to remember 5, 10, 15 minutes out of it. We spoke for two hours, maybe, Bezot Hashem, you're going to learn 20 minutes, you're going to remember. By tomorrow, it's a little less. A week later, it's a little less. And so on. That's reality. This is why Gemara Masechot says the most of the reward someone gets for going to a lecture, is for going to the lecture. Not for listening. Why? Because most of the stuff they're going to listen to, they're not going to remember or understand. But nonetheless, most of the reward is Shalalicha. But now you have Rabbi Elezer ben Hokinos has all of his Torah and he has this gift that everything that's ever said to him by his teachers, it's right here. It's not over here or here or somewhere in a different room like us. It's like right here, like he's learning it right now. So when the rabbis came to him and says, listen, the Tanur Achai, this oven, Alakha goes like this. And he says, no, it's the opposite. He said, okay, but we're majority. Alakha goes with the majority. He says, yes, but if I'm right, the water is going to go opposite. It happens. He said, yeah, but we don't learn Alakha from, from, from water. If it happens, at the end it says, if it happens, a, you know, it's going to be a butt call. A heavenly voice is going to come from Shemaim. And say, I'm right. And that's what happens. Butt call comes from Shemaim and says, why are you bothering my son Eliezer ben Hokinos? Don't you know the Alakha is always Eliezer ben Hokinos? He's always right. And the Chazal says, the rabbis say, very nice, but we don't learn Alakha from a butt call. Majority wins. Chazov, Chazov, like, change your mind, be with us. He says, no. Why no? Why no? He says, listen. I am a bol sut she'eno me'abed tipa. I am a cement cistern, meaning that for me, it's not like you guys, you learned the Torah a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, ten years ago. For me, everything I learn, it's like I'm learning it from my teachers right now. And you want me to go against my teacher when he's right next to me? Yes, you're saying what you're saying, but my Rabban Yochanan is right next to me right now. I feel Rabban Yochanan is right next to me, I see him, and he's telling me I'm right. Well, I'm going to go against my teacher for you. For you, your rabbi was 20 years ago. For me, my rabbi is right here now. It's hot. Just came out of the oven. How am I going to go get to my rabbi? Because the ah you have to have from your rabbi is like Yirat Shamayim. You understand? So it wasn't Gava Chas Shalom that Rabbi Eliezer had. It wasn't Chas Shalom any type of foolishness. It was the connection, the deep connection with his rav. He says, yes, I understand what you're saying. But my rav, right now, He's telling me something different. I'm learning it right now as we speak. It's different than what you're saying. And my rub got it from Mount Sinai. I see yeah. I made an exception just for him. You know, at this time we can't, <laughs> yeah. can't make he exceptions for. He got a buckle. They should have made an exception. Well, actually, he told his son, even though his son, you know, his, listen, he put on camera, he said, to his son, go with them. He knew that. Oh. Go with them. Why go with them? Because that's what the Torah says. You have to go with them. He goes, yeah, but what about you? He goes, listen, you can't help me. Why? Because for me, I'm learning it from my rabbi right now. Right now I'm learning it from my rabbi. 
And tomorrow it's also again right now. It's always brand new to him. It's always in the moment. That's Rabbi Eliezer. He cannot make a mistake. He's learning it right now. You ask him a question? What is the question? He's learning it right now. You understand? That's Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokimus. Rabbi Yoshua ben Hananiah Ashrei Yoladeto says Rabbi Yoshua ben Hananiah praiseworthy is she who bore him. Praiseworthy is his mom. Why didn't they give him some compliments? Why are they praising his mom? Chazal explains to us that when she was pregnant with Yeshua ben Hananiah, every single day she would go to where all the Talmidim Chachamim were, and she would ask him for blessings that my son is going to be a Talmid Chacham. Today, the mom doesn't even know what Talmid Chachamim are, but sometimes they ask him, she asks, she says, you know, somebody with a beard says, oh, you have a zgula for Parnassah? You have a zgula for my son being a millionaire? You have a zgula or a kamea for my son to, uh, you know, be the next Bill Gates? That's what we ask for. What does his mom ask for? Talmid Chacham. Why? When you know exactly where the treasure is. Exactly, you know, there's a treasure somewhere. Treasure, you know, map, there's a treasure. You know exactly where it is. And you have, the whole map is in your mind. You know exactly where it is. Are you going to waste any time going to the mall? Just to go, maybe get a t-shirt? Maybe get some ice cream? Are you going to waste any time Going anywhere else other than exactly where the treasure is. That was his mom. She knew that by him becoming a Talmud Chacham, that's the treasure. That's Olam Azeh and that's Olam Abba. That's this world and the next world. She was probably extra modest with her hair because they say women who, even the walls of her house are going to see her hair, will have very righteous kids. 100%. Zohar says that a woman that covers her head... With a mitpachat, will be merit. Will have a merit of having talmidim chachamim as children. So here, so what we're getting out of this? So why is the Mishnah complimenting his mom instead of him? Mishnah says that he wouldn't have been what he was without his mom constantly making sure that he's surrounded by talmidim chachamim. Constantly making sure that he's surrounded by the treasure. But knowing what the treasure is first is what we have to establish. Next is Rabbi Yosia Kohen Hasid. As we talked about in previous lectures, a Hasid is not like today where anyone that wears black and white and has a free beard on is a Hasid. A Hasid does not mean you're part of some organization, whether it's Chabad or Breslev or some other organization that does not necessarily mean you're a Hasid. A Hasid, according to the Rambam and Meiri, Meiri, the term Hasid indicates one who is a model of ethical and moral perfection. A Hasid means you have excellent midot. Doesn't mean you dress a certain way, black and white, black and blue. Doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean your beard can sweep the floor. Doesn't mean you have a hat that's $900. Like the cowboy hat I bought in Houston that's not worth 400 doesn't mean you wear a hat. doesn't mean any of that stuff. Yeah, you can wear a hat. You can have a beard. You can have black and white. 
But that's not a prerequisite to be a Hasid. What's the prerequisite to be a Hasid? What do you have to have on your heavenly resume to be classified as a Hasid in Shemaim? Excellent Midot. Good character traits. If you're still cheap, you're not a Hasid. If you get angry easily, you're not a Hasid. Unless you're a Kohen. If you're a Kohen, Gemara says, if you see someone that gets angry really quickly, don't judge to, don't jump to conclusions and say, oh, he's a mamzer. Because mamzerim tend to be angry. Don't jump to conclusions and say he's a mamzer because maybe he's a Kohen. <laughs> Kohens get angry. That's what Gemara says. They're better than the rest of us. But anyway, the uh, person that's a Hasid cannot be a hothead, cannot be stingy, cannot be flirtatious with every woman that's not his wife, cannot wear these uh, skinny jeans and be immodest because for some reason he skipped the lessons that as a human being you have to be modest not just as a woman also as a man has to be a generous person has to be kind has to be a good quality person but good quality based on the definition of Hashem Barach, not Hitler first requirement Tosfot Yom Tov says there's two definitions for Hasid. says one who performs all of his activities, even mundane ones, regular basic stuff, going to the bathroom, eating sandwich, basic stuff, not just all. Everybody's a tzaddik when they go to Beknesset. See, especially on Shabbat morning, with the talit on the head and Sephardic show, what? Everybody's a tzaddik, wow, look at this guy, look at the thieves the rest of the week. But he looks like a tzaddik, you don't know. We're not talking about shul. We're talking about all the time. Including when you go to the bathroom. Including when you go to sleep. Including when you talk to your wife, just a basic conversation to see how she's doing. Including when you're rebuking your little 11-year-old kid. Because... He did something he wasn't supposed to. All the time. And every one of his activities, according to Tosfat Yom Tov, must be for the sake of heaven. Channeling all his actions into the service of God. Translation meaning, I'm not eating this sandwich with bologna or turkey or steak or schnitzel. Because I really care about schnitzel. I'm eating this sandwich because I know that I'll be able to do a bracha of motzei in I know that I'll be able to do a birkat amazon, the number one blessing in all of Judaism, more than Shema Yisrael and more than Amidah. Where it's the only blessing in the entire Torah, where if you're not sure you did it, you must do it. Meaning, if your fruit 
And you don't know, did I do already, bo- you know, boy pets? Did I already learn boy pets? Zoni and I learned it the other day. Did I do boy pets? I don't know, I forgot. Should I do it? If I do it, Sonny says, and I already did it, then I'm using Hashem's name in vain. Hashem you know what kind of punishment you get from that? Hashem's not Joey. Hashem's not your buddy. You can't just use his and throw his name around. Like the Christians do, they call him in the name of the Torah, like it's a uh, toilet paper, Hashem Elohim. Can't use Hashem's name just if you feel like it. That's what we say Hashem, because Hashem means it's their name. It's not really a name. You can say Hashem 500 million times. But Hashem's real name, you can't say. Unless it's in a blessing, or you're reading a verse from the Torah. And you're modest, and you're covered, and so on. Like we learned from the Baba Metziah, he said, you can only pray praise to Hashem if you're clothed. So all these non-modest women that come to synagogue, they, they're not allowed in synagogue, not even allowed to open a sidu. Come with a miniskirt to synagogue. At home you're not allowed to be like that. But anyway, you want to say Hashem's name? Remember, it's not one of your friends. So if I don't remember whether I did the blessing or not, and I say His name, and I do the blessing again, I potentially take the risk of saying Hashem's name in vain, which is one of the violations of the Ten Commandments. On the other hand, if I don't say the blessing, then according to Gemara, I could potentially be a thief and stealing from Hashem. What's the halacha? We got two different Bemachloket. Better be, better be a thief. Then saying Hashem's name in vain. Better be a thief than saying Hashem's name in vain. We say Hashem's name in vain all the time and we're never thieves. We think we're tzaddikim. It's the opposite. But Hashem, you have to think about the All you have to have think about. But again, if it's a blessing, whether it's fruits, vegetables, Hashem Yatzah, all of those things, if you don't know if you did it already, there's a possibility that you did it, you don't do it. Unless it's Bikat Amazon. Bikat Amazon, unless you're 100% sure you did it, you must say it. You must do it. So now if you're eating a sandwich, first thing is, I'm going to do Mutsim Lechem Great. According to Gemara, it says you want health, uh, you want a um, heal. Heal yourself from all diseases, eat bread in the morning. So Mutsim Lechem already a good start. Then, Birkat Amazon, number one blessing in all of the Torah. Psh, amazing. But that's not enough. Hashem, I'm eating this so I have the koach to learn Torah for the next two hours. That's why I'm eating. I'm not eating because I'm just hungry. A lot of people are hungry. Some people are 350 pounds are still hungry. Some people just finish eating, especially if it's Chinese food, five minutes later they're already hungry. You eat Chinese food, you guaranteed to be hungry. Because there's a lot of sugar. That's really what it is. MSG. Constantly hungry. In a very short period of time, you become hungry again. But anyway, the key is, why am I eating? I'm eating so I have koach to do the service of Hashem Barach. So that's the first pirush that Tosfot Yom Tov says about Hasid. Second is one, 
who in a spirit of compromise forgoes money and entitlements in business. Someone who's not just righteous in business, but someone who anytime there's an issue when it comes to money, he has enough faith in Hashem Itbarach, who he says, you said it was 50, I said it was, I thought you said it was 40, okay, it's 50. You don't negotiate on small nonsense money. Why? You let the judge and jury up there. You say, are you $50? Okay. I, don't, I thought I paid you back, but you say I didn't. That's Hasid. The next one, I think is, for me personally, it's my favorite one. Rabbi Shimon ben Netanel yerechet. Rabbi Shimon ben Netanel fears sin. Now, if I told you someone is a chassid versus someone that has Yirat Shemayim, most people today would say, oh, chassid is, that's my rabbi. The guy that's a chassid is at a higher level. Not according to this Mishnah. Gemara Masechet Avodah Zara, page 20, B. And also in the Mesilat Yesharim, chapter 24, it gives us an understanding of how to get to the ultimate level. And it gives you a breakdown of where to start and where to finish. Someone that wants to get to the ultimate level of connection to Hashem. Tanu Abanan, the rabbi is taught in the Beretta. And you shall beware of any evil thing. And you shall beware of any evil thing. This teaches that a person should not think immoral thoughts by day and come thereby to Ma'ah by night. From here, by the way, this is one of the sources of wasting seed. It says someone that's surrounded by Tum'ah during the morning, he doesn't watch his eyes, he looks at women that are not modest, he watches TV, all of those things, he doesn't protect himself as far as internet and things of that nature. It's not going to be a surprise that he's going to have different sins as a result of that at the end, at night. But how do you get to a point of obviously running away from that, going to the exact opposite? Here he's talking about starting, the rabbi said it's the worst possible thing. Guy doesn't watch his eyes, there's no way for him to be a tzaddik. There's no way. Why? Always thinking about it in his mind, this girl wore that, that girl wore this. This guy did this, this guy did that. His whole world is tova vo in his mind. What's the opposite? From here, said, the study of Torah brings one to heedfulness. Heedfulness brings one to diligence. Diligence brings one to cleanliness. Cleanliness brings one to asceticism. Asceticism brings one to purity. Purity brings one to piety, meaning a chasidut. 
Piety brings one to humility. Humility brings one to fear of sin. Fear of sin brings one to holiness. And holiness brings one to Ruach HaKodesh. And Ruach HaKodesh brings one to being able to revive the dead. He just gave us the Gemara, Masechet Abu a perfect instruction set and a perfect map of how to get from being a Tameh person that thinks about girls all day and baseball nonsense to getting to a point of being able to be exactly like the Tzadikim in the Gemara, reviving the dead. Give you a map. You want to do it? Go ahead. It says first, it gives you instructions. What's the levels? You can't just go from nothing to something. You can't just go from wasting seed last week, next week in Moshe Rabbeinu. Can't be. It has to go up and ladder. It gives you the name of each step, each level. So at first you have to know that all of this is dependent on Torah. So study of Torah brings you to the first level. Study of Torah brings you to the second level, third level, and so on and so forth. The study of Torah is the only way. That's the map. That's the what you have to do. So first you have to be careful to just to stop sinning. Then you have to start thinking to yourself of how to stay away from it. And it gives you, I went over this in a different shiur, it gives you the details of every single one. This is also in Mesilat Yisharim, all of the 26 chapters of Mesilat Yisharim, Path of the Just. Each chapter breaks down one of these levels. Only difference between this Gemara and Mesilat Yisharim, there's a different in order on a couple of them, but overall the rest of it is exactly the same. Nonetheless, there's something very interesting about this Gemara that made me say it again. Even though I've already said it in a previous shiur, and I usually don't like to repeat the same thing. Something very interesting connects this Gemara to this Mishnah. If you see, if you remember, we said, Rishon, Rishon, Chashuv. First things first. In Gemara, usually things are announced in importance. But, there's also a rule of Acharon, Acharon, Chaviv. Save the best for last. Meaning that as actually the first wing is usually most important, but actually sometimes it goes, it graduates in importance, it gets much more important towards the end. But nonetheless, in his Gemara, in his uh, Mishnah, it says, it mentions Rabbi Chasid. It mentions the whole aspect of being a Chasid first, <laughs> and only after it mentions Yerechet, it mentions Yerat Shamayim. Being fearful of sin. Technically, it should be the opposite. According to our understanding, first you stop, you know, fear sin, then you can become a chassid. This Gemara says otherwise. It says, Tara mevia lede chassidut. Once you get to a high level of purity, you're a pure person, not only you don't sin, not only you run away from sin, but you're also at a point where you don't even think about sin. Your mind is clean. It's not that you're just one of those guys, okay, listen, I know I have a, I have a ability to be with this girl, but I'm not going to do it. Okay, but you're not exactly pure. You still have a mind and a thought that you should be with this girl. Meaning you're at such a pure level, you don't even think about it. It's not a choice. It's not in your phone. It's not in your mind. It's not in your computer. You don't have any of this. You're a pure person. That 
get you to Hasidut. That's one level below Hasidut. But even this Hasidut is still two levels. Two levels below Yiret Chet. Two levels below fear of sin. But this is not your typical fear of sin. The Gemara explains the basic level of fear of sin even an ignorant person can achieve. Meaning fear of sin because you don't want to get punished from Hashem. Even a bull can achieve that. No one wants to lose money if as long as they believe that God gives the money, they'll have Yerat Shemaim. No, 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 I'll go late filin. Why, you believe in God? No, I just don't want to lose any money. I just signed a contract. Oh, I'm really nice to my wife. Why are you so nice to your wife? Why, she's, she's a really good woman to you? No, not really. I just, I heard that Shlom Bayit, you have to have it in order for you to make money. Everything, their whole life is based on making money. They don't really believe in God. But they figure, you know what, let me have you, let me act like I have you at Shemaim so I can make money. It's like, they're making a deal with Hashem so I can make money. Everything's for money. Tzedek it says, even an ignorant person can achieve this level of Yerat Shemaim. But what Yerat Shemaim are we talking here? What Yerat Shemaim is so high that it's even higher than Hasidut by the definition of the Torah. Hasidut, definition of Torah, is not uh, the strimal and the beard. By Torah, it means that you're even higher level than the pure person that doesn't even have thoughts of sin. Yerat Chet is even higher than that. The Rambam quotes Yerechet as alacrity, which is an active, energetic pursuit of the proper path and refraining from any type of negative behavior. Magen Avot interprets these words in past tense, explaining that Rabbi Shimon was always fearful that perhaps he had sinned in the past. In the Mesilat Yesharim, they have a phenomenal chapter that talks about this. And we'll go over briefly and we'll finish in a second. Or two. In chapter 24, it talks about fear of sin. It completely puts to shame most of the teachings that are found in the English language today. Most of the English language teachings today are anti-Musar, anti-fear of Hashem. You tell them, listen, I teach about Yerat Shemaim. Like, Ooh. It's like uh, you're teaching them about, I don't know, something that's like a, against Torah. Oh, why don't you talk to them about love of Hashem? Hashem loves us. Hashem loves every Jew. No, that's not true. Why are you so negative? Why are you talking about Yerat Shemaim? Because of this Yeah. So, no one can say he's wrong. Me, you can say I'm wrong all day. I'm nothing. You can't. Ramchal, you can't say he's wrong. You go to Messiah Shalim, basic. This is what he says. I'll read it in English just for the sake of time. The second type of fear is awe of his exaltedness. Yirat Aurememut. Which means that one must distance himself from transgression and refrain from sinning because of the immense glory of the Blessed One. 
Meaning you're not sinning, not because you're scared of some punishment. You're scared because you have a little bit of an understanding of the glory of Hashem Barach. <laughs> Meaning, who are you to sin against me? You little peon. Who are you to sin against me? And you're thinking about this to yourself, like, how could I sin against Hashem Barach? Who am I, Bechlal? Who am I to even think about sinning against Hashem? Master of the world, King of Kings, Kodesh Kodeshim. Take uh, take care. Would you give us some uh, water? She okay? Oh, okay. For how can one commit a desecration, or how can the heart of one who is flesh and blood, lowly and despicable? Dare do something against the will of Creator. Blessed and exalted be His name. This is His language, not me. He says, Who are you, you despicable human being? Do you think you're going to sin against Hashem? You're made of flesh and blood. The worms are going to eat you soon. Who are you going to sin against Hashem? He says, This type of fear is not very easily attained though. To get to this type of point of knowing who am I to even sin next to Hashem? It's not easy to attain. And that's the beginning of loving. It will only emerge when one harnesses knowledge and understanding to contemplate the exaltedness of the blessed one and the inferior state of man. When one starts thinking, this is where Eid Bodhidut comes, by the way. When one comes up, uh, when one comes and actually starts thinking about the greatness of God, created the Shamaim, Aretz, he counts the stars, he created the stars. Some of these stars are so big, our planet looks like a little island next to it. And Hashem counts these stars and He made everything and we have colors. And even if you look at your own body, at your own body, your own body is like a universe. You look at your own body and you look at every cell in your body is to own its own universe. Whether you go far, far into the heavens or low and deep into your cells, and Hashem created every single moving part. And every single moving part, He knows the name of every single moving part. And He knows where it's moving. And this moving part doesn't move unless Hashem said so. There's no leaf that falls off of a tree unless Hashem signs off, permit it to fall. You're allowed to fall off the tree. You have my permission. It doesn't fall off the tree. The tree has tens and tens of thousands of leaves. And there's millions and millions of trees around the world. And one little tiny leaf is not allowed to fall. Mr. Hashem says, you can fall now. You start thinking about Hashem that way, and who are you? little piece of meat where everything that comes into you comes out stinky. What are you so proud about? What are you so prideful about? Mosquitoes were before you. <laughs> this is what the Ramchal is telling us here, Mesirat Yisharim. Having that fear is not easy though. All of these are the results of thoughtful and intelligent mind. And it is this type of fear 
that we previously placed within the second category of the virtue of piety, which causes a person to become embarrassed and tremble when standing before his master in prayer. He's not thinking about the football game when he's praying, Amida. He's shaking, shaking because he knows Hashem Bach is here, not there. He's not with the rabbi. He's not way over there. He's not in the next door shul because they're Bukharian or because he's Yemenite and because of... No, he's right here now. Right now he's here. You're going to play with your phone? You're going to talk to this guy? I have this rabbi. He writes articles about don't talk to shul. But every Shabbat he talks in shul. <laughs> writes articles. Oh, it's not nice to talk in shul. He's the number one talker in the shul. If you believed in God, you believed in a little bit of God, a little bit, not a lot, a little bit, you can talk in shul. You have the omits to talk in shul. It's a mini better mikdash, you're going to talk in shul. You're not even allowed to talk in shul when there's no tefillah. Go talk outside. On top of that, you're talking when everyone else is doing amidah. And you are complaining to Hashem why you have no parnasah. You're complaining to Hashem because somebody got cancer. You're complaining to Hashem that you got into an accident. You're complaining to Hashem about 500 million things and you even complain to Hashem when you're talking when other people are trying to talk to Him. How can they talk to Him if all they can hear is your voice? This is the most exemplary form of fear of the eternal. Now in case someone doesn't get it, it says here, this type of fear requires one to be fearful and concerned continuously. Lest some trace of sin may have become intermingled with his deeds, or lest his deeds contain within them something, whether of smaller or greater nature, which is not consistent with the glory and exaltedness of the blessed one's name. He says here, this Yirat Shamaim, Yirat Shamaim, well listen, I'm not going to overcharge this guy because I don't want to lose any money. I don't want to have to punish me with money. I'm not going to be with this girl because we're not really married yet. I'm not going to eat this meat because I'm not really sure if it's like legit kosher. It's not, it doesn't just say a K on it. You know, sometimes it's hot dogs. It's hot dogs. It says K with a triangle on it. You're not allowed to eat them. I didn't mention the name for a reason, guys. If there's a triangle with a K and it's, it's kosher, you're not allowed to eat it. It's not kosher. What's that triangle K then? It's, like it's kosher, but for not, for not, it's not a valid kosher for our type of meat. It's kosher if it's non-meat products. But the point I'm trying to say here is that fear of sin, if this fear, he's not talking about that. He said even an ignorant person could do that. The ignorant person knows you're not allowed to eat a hot dog. Ignorant person knows you're not allowed to steal or waste seed or go with the girl, all that. Ignorant person. He's not saying that. See, this type of Yerat Shemaim, the one that we're talking about that Rabbi Shimon ben Netanel had, so he's always scared. He's not only scared for the sins that he could potentially make and the ones that he potentially made, he's even scared about it as mitzvot. Maybe they're not good enough. 
Maybe the mitzvot I had, I did them for the wrong reason. Maybe I'm only doing this mitzvah because I think Hashem is going to give me money. Maybe I'm only giving tzedakah because uh, Hashem said I'm going to become rich. Maybe I'm only getting married because of the sleazy, sleazy, disgusting thoughts in my mind and not because of poor boo. Not because of shlom bayit. Maybe I'm treating my wife like she's a oven, a baby oven. Not like a amazing human being that is my other half. Maybe my mitzvah is not so kosher. Maybe. Now in case this wasn't enough, he gives us a few sources. Not that the Ramchal needs sources, but we need sources. He says, you need some sources. You have the smartest man that ever lived, King Solomon. Mishle, 2814. Praiseworthy is the man that's always scared. Not sometimes scared. Always scared. Why? Because he has this Yirat Shamaim. He has this Yirat Shamaim all the time. That means he has a better chance of getting to a point of reviving the dead. Not just being revived from the dead. But reviving the dead. Hashem. Someone that's always scared. Wow. If Shlomo HaMelech was in his generation, he'd think he's been Genom. Because over here, in this generation, people think Yirat Shamaim is bad. Shlomo HaMelech, says, the guy that's scared all the time, not only he's scared, all the time he's scared, he's the greatest there is. He's only one level below Ruach HaKodesh, which is one level below reviving the dead. That's Yirat Shamaim. If that wasn't enough, go to his father, King David. Tehilim 119, verse 161. Princes pursued me without cause, but my heart feared only your word. David Amalek says, listen, I had armies, armies. Princes meaning they led armies, not just one guy chasing them. Armies of people chased me. I was never scared. Okay, so they killed me. Okay, so they beat me up. Okay, whatever. Only thing I was ever scared was Hashem Itbarach, your word. Only thing I was ever scared was if I was going to follow your Torah to the T. Only thing I was ever scared of. And if that's not enough, my friends, we go to the only one that ever spoke to God face to face, Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu says in Sefer Shmot, we're going to learn it in a couple of weeks, 2017. In order that reverence from him be impressed upon you so that you do not sin. When Am Yisrael was in Mount Sinai and we got the Ten Commandments, Hashem said the first two out loud. After we heard the first one, we all died. I say we because our neshama, all of our neshama were there. I think Sonny was pushing me. We're all there. We heard the first commandment, Hashem's holy of holy voices, and we all died. Hashem had mercy on us and brought us back to life. He said the second commandment, we all died again. Hashem had mercy again, He brought us back to life. 
And we told Moshe, Moshe, you go talk to him. Because if he talks, we're going to die. I mean, we already died twice. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, Hashem is only doing this to impress upon you the necessity to be afraid of him. The necessity of Yirat Shemaim. Because the only way you're not going to sin is if, if you're scared. Love doesn't stop you from sinning. But fear does. Chazal asks in the Gemara Masechet Chagah, page 13b. What can we learn from the angels in regards to fear of Shemaim? And the Gemara says, from where does the heavenly fire, the river of fire, originate? It's a heavenly fire, lava, under the ground, over, above. Temperatures that are unthinkable. And sages ask, where does this fire come from? Where did it come from? What's the source to this fire in heaven, here? Where does this fire come from? Gemara and Chaligah says it comes from the sweat of the angels that are all fire. Gemara asks, why are they sweating? He says, because they're so close to God, they're all scared to death. So they're sweating to death. And their sweat is fire. So then the Gemara asks, what happens to this sweat? It says the sweat falls on the heads of the Rashaim in Gehenom. Even the Rashaim in Gehenom are reminded of the necessity of Yirat Shemaim. The only reason you're in Gehenom is because you didn't have Yirat Shemaim. And last but not least, Rabbi Elazar ben Arach, Rabbi Elazar ben Arach says, Rabbi Elazar ben Arach is like a spring flowing stronger and stronger. We'll talk about it more next week, but here the critical message we have here is that the Rabbi Lazar ben Arach was a mosif ve'olech b'derech Hashem ve'lo rak mekabel ve'yoshev b'sheket. Many considered Rabbi Lazar ben Arach the highest one, which we'll learn in the next Mishnah even higher than Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkenos, because everything that you would teach him, you would develop it, and develop it, and develop it. He wasn't settled with just what you taught him. His rabbis taught him, Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkenos, he remembered every single word like you just taught it to him now. Rabbi Eliezer ben Arach said, no, 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 let me see, maybe I could find a new chidush from this. It wasn't enough for him. Let me get more sources. Let me get more. Let me find out more. Let me confirm. Let me this. Let me argue. Let, 
Constantly, constantly moving, constantly moving. Which is exactly what a Jew is supposed to do every single day of his life. You're never supposed to be staying stagnant. You're always supposed to be learning. You're always supposed to be doing something that's going to get you closer to Hashem. You're always supposed to be checking yourself in regards to your prayer to see, is my prayer okay? Or is it the same mundane nonsense that I've been doing for the last six months without feeling anything? I'm just moving my mouth. A duck also moves his mouth. A duck also moves. Oh, you're reading with the eyes. Duck also moves the eyes too. I checked it in. Hashem wanted you to be a duck. He make you a duck. So here we understand that to get to a point of having a huge connection to Hashem, you have a couple of different ways. You have the beginning. In the beginning, we learn you be like Abiyazah ben Hokinos. Connect to your rabbi. Glue to him. Learn and retain everything you possibly can. Write notes down. Go over the shul. Read it over. Watch it over. Whatever you have to do, but stick to it. Don't be one of these people that every Tuesday you have a new rabbi. Because that just means you have no rabbi. Connect to it. And go with it all the way. Once you find someone, go with it all the way. You have your local Rav. You have a uh, Rav from Israel. You have a Rav from America. Wherever it is, different Ravs. But the point is, whatever you have, go with it all the way. You hold by al Sfaradi, Rav Avadia. That's it, Rav Avadia. Don't tell me next week. No, no, but Rav Yashif said this. What do you know about Rav Yashif other than his name? No, but uh, this Rav actually is a matil for wigs. Yeah, but do you even know anything else that he's a matihan? Do you know anything else? No, it's the only halakha. Okay, if you're going to keep that rav, if you're going to use that rav for wigs, or for any halakha, you have to keep everything he says. And you're not willing to keep everything. You can't just pick and choose. Oh, he says this, he says this. He says, that's what a lot of people do. They keep one from him. They think, uh, they think the shulchan uh, is a grocery store. One halakha from him, one halakha from him, one halakha from him. <laughs> You stick to it. You got a rab. You got a rab You got uh, whatever you have. Pick one. Stick to it. That's it. Shulchan Aruch. Great. The Rama. Great. Whatever you have, but just do something. Don't. Uh, it's not a. It's not Shoprite. It's not Walmart. Stick to your rab. So on one end, you can be like Rabbi Elizabeth and Hokinos. Another end, you could be like Rabbi Elazar ben Arach. Constantly be creative. Bring Chidushim to the Shiul. Not just standing there like a vessel just listening. Bring something. Hey, listen, I heard this Gemara, what do you think about it? Like, David, Sadiq that he is, sends me questions almost every single day. Not that I'm telling you guys to send me questions every day because it's so hard to already do what I have. But I'm trying to tell you, this guy, you know he's telling me to come. Why? It's constantly Torah, it's constantly in his mind. Constantly asking questions. Allah Hadis, Allah Hadis, Allah Hadis, Allah Hadis, Allah Hadis. Constantly. He's bringing something to the table. He's asking questions. He's constantly trying. But what connects the two? What connects the two 
Because you don't know where you are right now. You don't know if you're going to be just sticking to your teacher or you're going to be the guy that develops things. Number one, what kind of foundation you have as far as parents and the people you surround yourself with. Number two, are you working on your midot to be like a chassid? And number three, have you reminded of yourself of how important your Shemaim is? Have you reminded yourself today? Have you reminded yourself this afternoon? Have you reminded yourself this evening? Are you going to remind yourself tomorrow that without that Yerat Shemaim, the rest of it falls apart? Bezat Hashem, all of us take the sages' teachings into account, apply as much of it as possible to our life, get closer to Hashem Yitbarach, Another Hashem actually do tshuva. Question. We're talking about the fear of God and his bodhidut, but you didn't go into the bodhidut part. So what's the, like your take on it? The bodhidut is to, no, I said it. I said the the key to getting to the highest level of Yerat Shemaim is to think about God and how amazing he is. That's it, bodhidut. The, uh, there's different types of it but when you're thinking about God not an image of God but you're thinking about God of all of his creations how he cares about the leaf not falling how he creates the stars how he has names for the stars how he told Iov, Job he told him that every one of the hairs you have on your head has a name every single detail that happens in this world everything has a color everything has a taste everything has a system that's irreplaceable a system that's so perfect and amazing and the only way it can function is if Hashem thinks about it at all times. So when you think about the greatness of Hashem, it's very, very easy to realize how, how much of a nothing we are. Not nothing like, hey, you should be a uh, miserable person with your head down all day and uh, feel sorry for yourself. Meaning that you should never have any any reason to feel so proud of yourself like you're one of these, like you're something special. Because in reality, everything you have, Hashem gave it to you. Money, Hashem gave you the money. Wisdom, Hashem even takes the wisdom from the smartest of, of people. This is in Igeret Rambam, the Ramba, Ramban, or a letter to his son. Or a letter to his son. He goes, money, what are you so scared of money? It's Hashem's money. How are you going to be so happy and so proud and so excited about money, showing off your money to people when Hashem gave it to you? It's like stealing the king's robe and showing it off to people like it's yours. It's not yours. It's Hashem's. He's the king. He just, gave, he just took his robe. So when someone starts thinking about the greatness of God and how he runs everything and how he depends on Hashem, it's very easy to have you let your mind. But it's also very easy to get to a point of fulfilling your part where you realize that if everything comes from Hashem, it's easy for me to get rid of it if I need to. If I need to move communities because my community is a bunch of reshaim, it's not, it's not a problem. Okay, so I like the beach. Okay, so I like the house. Okay, it doesn't make a difference. It's not the will of Hashem. I'm going to leave tomorrow. Why? Because here is not where Hashem is. Hashem doesn't want me to be here. It's full of wicked people. It's full of naked women. It's full of reform. It's full of conservative. It's full of fake orthodox. 
Gotta go over there. Gotta get out of here. Where Rambam says, you can't find a place, go to the desert. Scorpion and the snake are to be your neighbors. Just run away from Kofrim, run away from wicked people. It's easy for me to leave. Why? Because it's the only one I do is for Hashem. On the other hand, I got a thousand bucks. Now, I'm not even thinking about it twice, about what bills I have, what bills I don't have. I'm thinking a thousand, what's a thousand? Okay, 10% of a thousand is 100. Right, Sonny? It's 10? 100? Stay at 100. 10% of a thousand is 100. Okay, 100 goes, kupat Yeah, but Rabbi, you live off of stakah. Okay, so? What, so stakah comes from a different source? Am I exempt? What the Maaseh says doesn't apply to me? Hashem gave it to me, I'm the only one that keeps it, all of you have to pay it? You don't think, oh, I have bills, but I have the rent, but I didn't pay the rent yet, and I didn't pay this, and the car bill, and the phone bill, and the this bill, and the that bill, da, 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 da. you're never going to pay myself. You got a thousand, you get ten percent. You get five thousand, you get five hundred. That's the point. Why? Because you know where it came from. Once you know where it came from, you know it's not yours, Bichlau. It's easy to get rid of it. One time I gave my rub some money. He says, why are you sending me money? I said to him, uh, you know, why not? He goes, let me tell you a story. He always tells me stories. One of the was supposed to help his organization, Yeshiva, collect some money. He says, uh, he said, listen, there's this big, you know, rich guy, but he's very cheap. We shouldn't go to him. He goes, no, 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 him I want to go first. Him I want to go first. So he goes to him. He sits with him. He goes, oh, for the Av, you know, I'm not really giving. He goes, giving? What, what gift do you have to give? I don't want you to give anything. And he starts giving him Musar, explaining to him how his money is mama's garbage. How his, how he's so far from Hashem that he's in such a terrible position because of this money that he has that it's mamash become a curse in his life. The guy takes it to heart. Mamash, he gets it. This is Gdodo, not me giving you a lecture. This is Gdodo, he gets to the heart directly. Me, I need 18 lectures. Him, one time, five minutes. The guy mamash starts crying. He starts crying and he opens the safe behind him immediately and he starts taking money out. And he starts saying, take, take. And the rabbi throws it back and goes, why are you giving me your garbage? The rabbi's helper is watching this. He's like, there's a million dollars exchanging between hands. The guy is saying, here's the million. The rabbi says, I don't want your garbage. And he's trying to think, let me take some. Why does anybody want this? Okay, the guy finally got Musar. He finally realized it's time to give tzedakah. But why is the rabbi saying, why is the rabbi saying, I don't want your garbage? Because the rabbi actually believed everything he was teaching. And through his own teaching, he got some musar. He said, why do I need this garbage for you? Give me your garbage. As long as you think your money is worth something, my friend, you have some garbage.
Any questions? What about the wigs? You said that even the Ashkenazi, Kamineski said that they're not going to wear a wig at all, even the Ashkenazi. Yeah, we said in the previous year, we published it, we're going to come out with something again about it soon. But listen, in general, there are some etirim for the Ashkenazim that uh, some of them can rely on. Uh, the problem is that none of the etirim count on two things. One condition is the fact none of the etirim, none of the permissions count on the fact that the uh, wigs are um, not modest. Today's wigs are not modest. The ones that the rabbis permitted in previous generations look nothing like the ones today. So no one permitted the wigs of today. As a matter of fact, there was a uh, video that just came out by Rav Kanievsky. They showed him a 10-year-old wig. A 10-year-old wig, so which means that it's in horrible shape and you know it obviously looks less realistic. Uh, they showed him a 10-year-old wig and they asked him, is this allowed? Short wig, but 10 years old and thinking that if there was anything allowed, this would be it. And he looked at it and he goes, absolutely not. This is, looks too realistic. So, this is the Gdolado of the Ashkenazim, not the Sfaradim. He's Gdolado in general, but you know, point is, this is anyone's Ashkenazi. He has to hold by Rav Kanievsky. He says, it's, too re- it's a 10 year old wig. 10 year old wig, he says, it's too real. You can't wear this. It's supposed to be obvious that it's not real hair. Here, today's wigs, whether it's the real ones or the fake ones, the whole goal is to make them look like real hair. So people are completely confused. So number one, no posek ever said that today's wigs are legal, that today's wigs are allowed. No posek ever. It could be even worse than not putting them on Number two, door. number two, and we'll finalize with that. No posek ever permitted idol worship. There's a whole Gemara, Masechet Avodah Zarah, over 70 dapim, 70 pages, over 150 pages, of the Pim explaining how one is never allowed to benefit from anything that was ever associated to idol worship. And after very, very thorough research, we know for sure that it's practically impossible, practically impossible to find a wig that does not have a source or a connection to idol worship. Impossible. Unless you went directly to the person that's cutting their hair in the middle of America or middle Israel, uh, let me shave your head, I'm taking it right now, and confirm they're not idol worshippers, it's impossible to know. Why? Because all of the wigs in the world come from India and China. And there was actually another video that came out, there was a pianit, a, a woman that she sells wigs and she puts them on people's head. She said that they made a lot of balagan about this idol worship thing about... Uh, 10, 15 years ago, Gdolea started started uh, what's called burning wigs in Jerusalem. When they found out that they're all coming from uh, from India, and it's the source is idol worship because you know the temples over there became the second richest entity in the world because many pilgrims, millions and millions and hundreds of millions of people, you know, sacrificed their hair as a way of Abu of idol worship. Um, so long story short, when they found out that all of the wigs in the world come from idol worship, they banned them. They started burning all of them. This panit says, yeah, that was all nonsense. That was all planned by the businessmen. Why? Which, unfortunately, look like they're religious. Why? Because the very next day, they already had a, uh, what's it called? A, uh, 
a kosher shipment, a container, container already ready at the port. She says, listen, anyone that knows even a little bit of business knows to get a container from China, from India, from anywhere, takes a month and a half. A month and a half it takes. And what? All of a sudden, this container is full of kosher wigs. All of a sudden, they're all kosher. Day after they burned everything, all of a sudden, the whole market can be supplied with kosher wigs now. The next day. Next day. Not even like a week. They didn't even hide it. So anyone that wants to believe this nonsense of there's kosher wigs, there's non-kosher wigs, there's no such thing. It's either because, it's either not kosher because it's not modest, or it's not kosher because Abu Dazara. That's it. There is no kosher wig in the world. I don't care what anybody says because, again, you look at what the poskim say, there's no such thing as a kosher wig. As a matter of fact, there's a, there's a contest in Israel. There's a contest in Israel. They're willing to pay a dayan, $100,000, which is an enormous amount of money in Israel. They want to pay any Dayan, $100,000, any Avrech, $18,000, any Talmit Chacham, $36,000, if he can prove that one wig today, any wig today, it's kosher. Any wig is kosher, they'll give him $100,000 cash. Ten years they're having this competition, no one's ever tried. Shalom, I will say, in the video you sent me, or you share on Facebook that it's very easy for a woman to become a Kharabi. She could become a Kharabi in a man. Everything, everything. It's very difficult. It's very difficult for people to pass this test, but again, there's no shortcuts in the Torah. You either have your or you don't. What about the kosher overkill? Depends. Depends what's kosher. If it's food, if you're gonna consume it, then it needs to be kosher. But no, no, if it's no, no, a I'm uh, not saying that I'm saying that they're I think they have yeah, that's nonsense. That's just marketing. That's nonsense. That's not. That's like, for example, when you go to uh, the baby arras, they have baby water. They sell baby water for four dollars, which they buy from you know the regular store for ninety nine cents. But again, they, you know, capitalism also depends on stupid people, you know, and, and that's that's just a reality. There's a sucker born every day. Kosher became a business too. Yes, no, it's not. You don't need to get kosher. There's no such thing as a kosher apple. There's no such thing as a. A lot of these things they get you like kosher sponge. That's complete nonsense. Yeah, the sponges, the kosher pants, the silver pants. Yeah, it's all types of nonsense. Listen, if once you're connected to a rav, once you're connected to a rav, once you can ask questions, once you tell them the truth, once you you live the truth, once you're connected to Hashem. No sin will come to you. Why? Because you're, you're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to right, do the right thing, Hashem is going to show you the way. But if you're looking for excuses, Hashem will show you a sea of excuses. And you'll die with the tefillin on your head and go straight to Gehenom. You understand? So without Hashem, all of us go to Gehenom, all of us do tshuva, all of us actually get closer to Hashem, live the truth, teach the truth, learn the truth. And without Hashem, Get mala mala and show Am Israel how great it really is. Baruch Adonai Leolam. Amen. Ve Amen.